0: scary movies Uh uh-huh i'm getting ready to watch a video you making popcorn Uh uh-huh what's 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 your favorite uh i don't know you have to have a favorite talk to me talk talk to me hi everybody i'm george and welcome to the best little horror house in philly the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made according to our guest, at least and this week we're keeping it local talking with another philly boy He's juggling about 10 roles with No Master, the group behind the Blobfest, and George's heart-winning short, Guard Dog. Please welcome Josh Jones. How's it going, dude? Pretty good. Keeping it short, keeping it sweet. I love it. Really excited to have you here. I love your work. Everything that I've seen from you guys has been just hilarious, scary, effective, really, really great stuff. I'm really curious to hear about your history with horror, where it all started for you.
1: Well, I think people love horror because they love to be scared. Is the is a lie? That's a lie. People, peop The man wants you to believe that mankind wants to be scared. They do not want to be scared. They would rather be happy. Um, <laughs> what? In my history with horror, is uh, about a man seeking his happiness. You see, I brought it around. I know. That was nice. This is an anecdote. you're you're talking to a master of storytelling. Um, I am a director. And so as a storyteller, it's important that I'm happy. And to be happy, I decided not too long ago to focus on one of the things that I kept coming back to, which was horror. I started to think about my career in filmmaking, doing animation and music and directing. And then I thought, I should do more commercial directing. So I talked to a commercial director friend of mine. Uh, He's a great guy, and he had some great advice. He's like, You gotta make more upscale stuff. So you're gonna have to make stuff on spec. And you're gonna have to find local vendors or people you know run businesses and solicit them and say, Gee, can I make a free commercial for your donut shop? And they'll be like, No or yes. And I, <laughs> so I was like, Yeah, okay, that's a great idea. And then I'll, I, I, come up with a modest budget for it, scrap together something that looks really really nice, looks really really expensive and then I can start to solicit for better jobs and commercials. And I started reaching out to people and I realized I I don't want to I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't even want to do this at all. Like I think I want to do it because I think it'll make me money, but I don't even want money bad enough to to do this. Like what is <laughs> what will happen? What if I succeed? In that case, I'll just be doing this. No, no way am I going to keep doing this. So I was like, I can do horror. I keep coming back to horror. Even when I was just doing music, even when I was just in bands, horror would come up as a theme inappropriately on albums where it was like, why does this sound so spooky, Josh? It's like, because I always wanted to do a horror soundtrack, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they just have to tolerate it, but not tolerate it no more, for they are gone, <laughs> those days and those people. Well, they're back, actually. They're, they're all involved again, but, in, but now <laughs> they, they know what they're getting into.
0: And now you have an outlet.
1: It's only been a few years in my life where maybe a couple years of my life, a few meeting three and a couple meeting two, of course. A couple years in my life, I'd say, where I didn't really have a creative outlet, and they were the worst years. They were just, just awful. And I Mm -hmm. made a bunch of money, and I really didn't like it, and I really didn't feel great. But then, uh, you know, now now I got outlets. There you go. There you go. Was
0: horror something that you were always watching, and you were just like, oh, I just need to be making it as well?
1: Yeah, no, I I grew up, uh, like, I would guess every single person that you've ever talked to on this podcast is like, grow up. Watching horror, maybe way too young, all that stuff. And, you know, watched with my friends in high school. Really into it. There was a short period where I really wasn't into it because I was like, I'm, I want to take my art seriously and learn about painters and be a painter and musician. Chiaroscuro. Yeah, I gotta learn about <laughs> light and composition and everything. And, but meaning also because, like, what do these blobs mean? These are important. I don't have time for Evil Dead. And, and then I uh, met my wife, and she was like, I, I don't watch a lot of movies, but I love horror. And I was like, I guess I'm back into horror, baby. <laughs> and that was when I was 19. So it was about a year where I was pretentious enough to think I didn't want to be more involved with horror or watch horror. But yeah.
0: Definitely, that is one of the main archetypes <laughs> that comes across for guests. But also, you might have people like myself who were very much not into horror as a kid scared shitless of everything, but always had that sort of fascination with it. And then eventually you just say, I got to just suck it up and I got to just watch
1: these damn movies. Well, does that, did it leave you? Because I mean, I had that, I have, you know, I I mean, I was not like a child like, I'm not afraid of this. I'm just, as a nine-year-old, I'm analyzing Pet Sematary (laughs) as a a piece of work. I want to understand the camera moves. No, I didn't think about any of that. I was like, that is real, that cat is still alive. It, nothing can kill it and it yeah. will one day find me. Uh, mm-hmm. if I sometimes get, dead is better. Sometimes that is better. I don't, I, and this is just me personally. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I just don't want to live my life again. <laughs> Ooh, very interesting. You know, call me crazy. That's really good. You
0: should write that down. I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I've already forgotten it.
0: That's a, a, a tale as old as time. Uh, I'm curious about. Your favorite subgenre, because even in just the stuff of yours that I've seen, you've sort of hit a couple of different areas of horror. So I want to know not only about your favorite subgenre to watch, but I'm also curious if that's different from what you like to make. Yeah,
1: that's a good question. I, I, uh, I would say, unfortunately, I don't have a great answer. I don't, I don't think I have a favorite subgenre. Uh, there's some, th- There's some things that I come back to a lot, probably because of my age, I I come back to 80s horror a lot, but then I, I, you know, 80s, early 90s stuff like just resonates with me in a a nostalgic and comforting way. Mm -hmm. But some of my favorite stuff, I don't think I could say any of it fits into a subgenre like, oh, I just love ghosts or the paranormal, or I love stuff like the movie Chud that focuses on sociopolitical ideas couched in... Campy Monsters and Green Slime and Ooze. I, I mean, both of those are my favorite at the same time. Sure. And many others. So while I really, really enjoyed the
0: Jim Paul's Anti-Monster Jujitsu Masterclass <laughs> Training for Kids video that y'all did with No Master, I did want to talk a little bit about your upcoming short, Pop. I really liked in pop the way that you handled lighting specifically and the shadows to make the really dingy basement. Those outside the area may not know that many of the basements in this area are unfinished, low concrete ceilings and walls. In college, a lot of the parties were in those basements, so they stank of beer and sweat. Very pungent sense memories. Then on Friday the 13th in October last year, I went to the Edgar Allan Poe House here in Philly. And went into the basement, and it's scary and dark, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'd be fucked up, too, if I had to go down here constantly without electricity. Yeah. So I just wanted to really say, first off, incredible work with the lighting and shadows, everything.
1: Really spooky. Really great. Thank you so much. A big shout out to our gaff, Kevin Gallagher, who is one of my partners at our studio in Fishtown Small Mall. Kevin Gallagher is also a producer. He's done a couple of horror movies in Philadelphia, American Exorcist and Alpha Girls. And Fallon is his partner who was also the lead in our new short pop and Devin Vocal, who was the DP and had a lot of the vision for how the lighting was going to go. And he put the lighting crew together. And, you know, we worked together on it very much, but I, I, I couldn't execute any of that. I've worked as a gaff and a, and a grip in a very, minimal capacity, and and both of them have done, especially Kevin Gallery, have done a ton of high-end stuff. Awesome. Well, it comes across. I'm lucky just to have access to both of them.
0: You also managed to get this kind of cool faint in the short, which is impressive considering it's just over six minutes. Um, there is sort of an illusion that makes you think, oh, this might be about our lead character sort of killing people to get up the wait list, and instead it becomes something very different. I'm curious about how much the constraints sort of play into your concepting. Ultimately, what you see of the thing at the end is is not so much, right? It's it's pretty kept under wraps. Are Are you like, oh, this is what we're going to be able to execute, so let's sort of work around designing this specific piece of it to be the best that it can? Or do you sort of have an idea and then work backwards to scale it down once you realize sort
1: of what the limitations are? I had a dream where, and I I frequently have nightmares. I have problems sleeping in general, and I have a lot of nightmares. Much to my wife's chagrin, many of these nightmares end with me going, <laughs> and, or or sometimes she said, and I you know sort of wasn't there for that, but she's told me that I like chant in my sleep, which is oh nice, absolutely <laughs> terrifying for her, sure. you know. But she loves horror, right? So. <laughs> I had this dream where I was being, uh, pursued by a snake and I climbed up the side of a house and I was trying to figure out how to get my leg around the awning. Once I had climbed up the side of the house and the snake, I was like, okay, the snake can't come up here and get me. And I looked down and it just kept getting higher and higher until it was, I was just perplexed. It's like it can't, like it was lifting. Imagine like a cobra, mm-hmm. how a cobra sort of comes up. It sort of stands almost on itself. And then it poises itself to strike. And it did exactly that. And I was, I remember just watching it being like, I have no time to get away from this thing. And I'm, <laughs> I've got nowhere to go. I, I could drop. And, you know, the moments, momentary thoughts in your head are like, how would I survive if I fell? It would still just come right back to where I am. Like, and then before I had time to wrangle all those thoughts it you know, it attacked me and I woke up. And that mixed with the concept of how A lot of people's fears and, you know, mine to a certain degree. But I remember my asking my dad, who's a very different person from I am and very tough person, very hardworking person, cares about things like that. I asked him one time of what he was afraid of because he was constantly getting injured. He was not the kind of person with faint of heart, had been through a lot, both physically and mentally in his life and seemed fine, you know, mostly. And I asked him one time, what is the thing that scares you the most? And he's like, not being able to take care of myself or the other people around me. Being par- paralyzed, it was an example he gave, was, you know, a great fear because I, I it would kill me to have have to be taken care of. And part of the, the story that I wanted to tell was just what scares me, what scares other people, right? And then it's really to get back to what you're asking about, how do you sort of do I retrofit everything so that it can actually be shot? And can work within like the location that I can get access to. Cause obviously this is all independent. It, I funded all of it myself and, you know, tried to keep his costs down as much as humanly possible. Of course, while not making it look cheap. Right. Part of it is retrofitting. Part of it is I, I have a script. I have a cast in mind. I'm going to write to their strengths. And I'm also, but I also am going to try to stay true to what the heart of this is. Meantime, I have to get a practical, these practical props in production. So. There's a question of like, the location has to fit with that thing. And then also, I've got to find this location, I just happened to get very lucky. And I got a location, a friend of mine was working on a house, and it was mostly vacant. And for uh, fortunately, we had delays, and he didn't get the house in order. But by the time we had the delays, (laughs) we had lots of room wiggle room. So once I saw the house and I had to recast a little bit for scheduling conflicts, once I saw the house and I had the cast set up and I knew what the scale of everything was and I knew basically what the crew was, I just rewrote and rewrote until the day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, every tiny little changes and even on the day, it's like, okay that that didn't sound right. Coming out of you. we're going to do a take like this and just move as quickly as possible, as many shots as possible. So how do you make all that work? You just got to be really flexible. You just got, mm-hmm. you got to be really flexible and keep an eye on what is scary. Understand your fundamentals, I think is a good, one. I mean, I'm talking like I know, but uh, I made it <laughs> I made a couple of shorts. Right. But this is how I think of it. I'll say, right. right. I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody exactly what they should do, but I think of it like, what are the fundamentals? It's, you know, horror when you're really trying to make a scare is mechanical in nature. It's like a, it's like a joke. It shouldn't feel mechanical, but you know where your setup is. You know what has to hit. You know what the audience has to understand the, in the context so that the punchline lands. Mm-hmm. And the same with a scare. You've got to take people off guard. And and a great way to do that is to have characters that aren't talking about what the horror is seemingly at all. They're, they're their own people living their own lives and they're compelling Because you you like and dislike them at the same time. You want them to win. You want them to succeed as much as you might want them to fail. And that's really great to distract people. Keep your hand waving in one direction. And then the next thing, you know, something falls or somebody, you know, pops out from somewhere and. Phone rings, perhaps. The the phone ring. that That's a good one. (laughs) I'll write that one down. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how I think of it.
0: It definitely works. Congratulations on Pop. Thank you. It is really, really awesome. Thank you so much. But the movie we're talking about today is Chud, Chud. directed by Douglas Cheek and released in 1984. Now, one of the main characters of the Chud story is producer Andrew Bonamy, who was very, quote, hands-on, which you can read as meddlesome for a producer. Ooh. Reading between the lines of his contemporaneous Fangoria interview was really, really fascinating. Previous to this movie, he'd worked on an adaptation of Sylvia Platt's The Bell Jar, saying, I thought this was going to be a classic movie from a classic book. Well, that would allow me to go to cocktail parties and say, I produced this film, which means I'm literate, and people from high school will like me, and college people will call me up and ask me to give me lectures. The film, however, didn't make any money. So, Yeah. Things are not going great for him off the bat.
1: Not a lot of juice came out of that particular picture, obviously. (laughs) I mean, it was laden with a lot of New York hopefuls at the time and, and people who did go on to do... A lot and some people who just had really, really great, solid character actor careers. John Goodman. I'm, I'm not going to list off everybody. John Goodman has a very tiny role in it, just as uh, John Hurd and uh, Daniel Stern have lead roles in it. I remember watching it, finally getting to watch it for the first time about 12 years ago, maybe a little longer. I had already finished and been really obsessed with The Wire. And I remember watching Chud and being like, well, I gotta watch Chud sometime. I mean, it's got, it's got nuclear waste. It's got monsters. It's the eighties. Like, it's, it's, it's great. But mm-hmm. it was one of those things that's like a, a fine wine for you. You know, I don't know about other <laughs> horror fans, but there's certain movies that I'm like, I know I'm going to watch this one day. I'm saving it. So right. I'm not just going to watch it like some night. I'm going to be like, okay, this is the night I'm watching Chud. Um, and I watched it and, and then I watched it many, many other times immediately after because it was, it was so much more complex than I expected it to be. The writing and the performances and the, the cut of it was so much deeper than I expected it to be. And I always mm-hmm. talk about it like it's an eighties New York horror monster movie that feels like The Wire. It feels mm-hmm. like. You're never like, ch- you know, you ask anybody what Chud means and you really got to pay attention to find out, you know? It's like in the wire when they're talking to, they keep using nomenclature like PC and you're like, what is PC? I don't, I'm not a, pol- <laughs> I'm, I don't work at a police station. I'm not a lawyer. What does that mean? And through context, you eventually, you learn it, right? Actually, Frankie Faison, who, who was the uh, eventually commissioner in, um, in the wire was in Chud. One of the the cops with the flamethrowers in the sewers. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's how I think about that one. (laughs) The wire in the eighties horror. The the complexity of of having Daniel Stern's character have this like hustle with another cop who they have a very they have a specific relationship with. He's sort of Daniel Stern is almost like a slightly different circumstances, but he runs a soup kitchen in the movie. And he's a lot like Bubs, Bubbles in uh, in The Wire, where he he gets his he goes to the bottom of the bottom and he goes right to the top just because he's he's who he is. He's got enough yeah. charisma and enough confidence that there's no real there's no not a place that Bubs don't can't fit in. You know, smooth operator. He's a smooth operator, and he gets into this room covered in grease and 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 grime and not showered clearly. And he has a very frank discussion where he tries to leverage some big bureaucratic fat cats who mm. are running a smuggle game, which is, which is like the monster of the movie is, is commerce. It's not, That's right. it's not actually the, the chuds. The chuds are the victims of wow. commerce. The chuds were people. Actually, another wire connection, uh, the guy, I forget the actor's name, but the guy who played the Greek, in the, in the second season of The Wire, everybody's favorite, was one of the homeless people who starts to lose his mind because of his prolonged exposure to radioactive material. Right. Yeah.
0: They had access to these great actors because of where they were situated on the art scene of New York yeah. and, and being able to sort of, you know, you get John Hurd and he is able to pull people who he knows Mm -hmm. and 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 daniel stern is able to talk to some of the the people that he's been working with and you just sort of build up this cast that helps to elevate the material that it's working in which is as you say already very interesting and complex more so than one might anticipate and in that way it really reminds me of what i like about the movie which is that it feels a lot like the sort of atomic age horror of the 50s and stuff where it is very much that paranoid feeling and very much like we the people versus the government (laughs) the man this movie i would say that the movie it reminds me most of is q the winged serpent yeah and it is just so like joe schmo is already put upon and how can a monster story change that dynamic right but at the same time, it even also throws further back than that because it, it feels very Morlocky, right? It just yeah. feels like it's H.G. Wells, uh, the origins of science fiction. It has its roots so, so deep.
1: Yeah. It's social commentary and it's also, it's a B movie. And like you said, it's, it's elevated. Like Ridley Scott talked about Alien. He said, you know, look, this is just a B movie, but us working together, we, you know the people who were involved in producing this and 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 making it were they're what elevated it to something mm. that stayed. I mean, with the Imagine Alien, without the lead designers, and I, I mean, I obviously, remember H.R. Geiger, Geiger, uh, whatever. But there was also the the guy that was I forget his name right now, but he was the opposite of Geiger. He was very obsessively orderly, and he couldn't really. The part of why Geiger got the job was because he was. Designing things that were a little too right angle, a little too futuristic, a little too clean looking, right. and then they ended up finding Geiger, and they're like, "Man, this guy <laughs> that that works.
0: We want this guy's ribs and dicks all over the place." Right.
1: <laughs> but the guy who created the Sulaco, and you know, created these these interiors and everything that they they used to do the art direction. He was as much a part of it. You know, you remember Geiger because that's the alien. That's the creature. Right. And, you know, you typically when you think of design outside of working in that industry, you're just like, somebody designed that monster. And then they shot it on a real spaceship, <laughs> a real planet. <laughs> like, there's just a sen- the that sense of, yeah, Jurassic Park. They just shot dinosaurs and, you know, dinosaurs are, I I mean, I don't know. The dinosaurs aren't real, but but they shot real dinosaurs.
0: It, it is almost like a thankless job, right? Where the almost the best thing that they could do is have it fade completely into the background yeah. and not be noticed.
1: Well, yeah. And that is one of the day jobs I have doing uh, VFX. Is like one of the jobs I got to do that I was really proud to get to be involved with was a docuseries called Philly DA that focuses on Larry Krasner, who I got to meet. It was him and his wife at the release of that and talked to him for a little while. First thing he said to me was, uh, you're an asshole. Look how tall you are. Because we we're taking a, <laughs> we were, we were, uh, to, for, to be fair, we we're taking a photo together, and I am a lot bigger than him. He's a tiny little. You're guy. a tall guy. I'm a tall guy, and he's just a, another short, short, short guy. And his wife is yeah. very nice. Was ex judge Jill. That's all the name dropping I'll do today. So I met that. <laughs> you know, also everybody's favorite Larry Krasner. Um, <laughs> nothing will endear me more to Philadelphians. I really like him. But anyway, politics aside, I worked on Philly DA. Which is a fantastic docu series. If anybody hasn't seen again, uh, connections to the wire. It feels like you know. What if you really just shot something that felt like it was it was the loam or the the inspiration for something like the wire? Mm-hmm. You get to see the inner workings and in where the sausages made the, the guts of Philadelphia's local government and the bureaucracy and the pains of all of that. And it, I, I've got a credit on there. It's just VFX. It's just Harvey and I doing VFX. Mm. for it and it's like well what it's a docuseries well why would you have VF <laughs> there's no dragons it's like well there are shots where you gotta you know they're like okay this has got to be this time or we need the snow out of this shot or this shot is this b-roll is damaged it's got sure. this this problem here or this sweet. logo can't be here right something as simple as that where you have to swap something out I don't think any of what I did, I want to point out, it, none of that breaks the reality of what is going on. You're still seeing as true a, a story as a documentary ever can be. You didn't insert Bugs Bunny in there somewhere? <laughs> I had the. To- I had the head of the FOP. I put horns on him. <laughs> yeah. I added spinach in his teeth. <laughs> you know?
0: I thought that they would just happen to be revealed
1: on that day. Yeah, that was right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I faked so many of those lines. No, no, I didn't do it. There's no deep fakes in that whatsoever, but it's one of those jobs. Like you said, when you're doing, when you're doing a great job in filmmaking, a lot of what, a lot of what the, the, that long list of credits that you see are people that are just trying to be as seamless as possible. They're trying to be yeah. as invisible as possible. So
0: Bonamy gets given this treatment for Chud by story credit holder Shep Abbott. He's in a funk, and the the script, he says, it's in shoddy shape, but he thinks it'll make a lot of money, and he's really stung by the failure of the bell jar. Shep said in the commentary that the story we see doesn't really reflect too much of his original which featured people who were sick, not the radiation-evolved freaks that we know and love. He built the movie around the word chud after coming up with it while drunk and loving it. And then he was like, and then once I came up with it, it was really hard to actually shoehorn into the
1: movie. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't seem that hard. He came up with two great anagrams. Um Is that right? Anagrams? That's not right. Um, whatever it is. Uh, (laughs) It's, uh, letters with periods. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He he came up with two. It was, uh, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. And the other one is something contamination, contamination hazard, urban disposal. Disposal. That's
0: right. That's right. And you finally, when you, when it's revealed and your head does a full 180 of surprise.
1: (laughs) Honestly, I feel like everybody. I know who has seen that movie don't remember that. And they always say cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. And I think that says something about this. I I let that, I'll say, I let that say something deeper about the script and its brilliance, which Mm. is that, those stories, even The Wire in its day, i going to keep going back to The Wire. Even The Wire in its day, the people working on The Wire were like, this is a dud. This ain't going nowhere. <laughs> Thru- throughout, to the, to the, I, I believe most of the people were pretty unconvinced that it was going to be anything past the first season. And then later it was like, wow, this is lauded because of how genuine it is and how close it brings people, how far it strays away from copaganda. Right. And what you expect out of a cop show. And how you expect to have your hand held at every second. You have to, you know, have so many of those shows end up just being, you're, you're being constantly, uh, most cop shows are about two things. They're, they're one. They're like, you got to love these characters because they're putting their lives on the line. And then, and then you've got the other thing where they're like, they're doing a really hard job and they're trying to keep us safe. (laughs) And, and, you know, and then there are people who actually have to deal with cops all the time. And the cops in the wire are much closer, I'll say, <laughs> although maybe I've also heard a lot of people say they're really too nice to cops in the wire is that they're they're shown as people. And that's mm-hmm. also great. I mean, it's also the, one of the great things about the the stories like The Sopranos at the time that were coming out. They're shown to be people with flaws themselves. And how do those flaws when their responsibility is to make a decision whether or not to successfully pursue or investigate a murder or whether or not to uh, move funding in, from education into the debt. Those questions are, are really deep and they're really an- annoying to have to handle. And that isn't typical in en- entertainment. It asks a lot of the audience. And I think Chud is the same. Having it finally revealed, what is this, Chud? Cannibalistic humanoid underground dweller. And then later for it to change, that's a lot to ask for an audience. It's like I'm here for blood and guts and stuff. <laughs> like you guys seen like like Friday the Thirteenth? Can you do that <laughs> or not? Like what are we doing here?
0: Yeah, it definitely works for me. I for sure when I think of Chud, I think of the the name cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. And in this movie, they're specifically like it's not that after all.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's sort of like the larger point, right, is is that we we have an expectation for how things are and what they are, and, and then we, we get kicked in the ass by reality constantly. Mm, so true, so true.
0: I did think Shep is a pretty funny guy. He talked about how the only two scenes of his that they saved were people getting attacked, and then when he went to a screening in Connecticut with some friends, he's all proud to see his credit. Then it comes up on screen, and the guy behind him goes, Shepard Abbott, what the hell kind of name is that? <laughs> Made me laugh. Hey, buddy, you're in Connecticut. You're going to hear names
1: like that. Get used to it. Nice. <laughs> Shepard Abbott is definitely a very Connecticut, you know. Is he a rich man? Is he is from a man of wealth? We don't know. He seemed like, a, like a, a salt of the earth type on the commentary is what I'll say. Yeah.
0: As far as what drew Andrew to the script, he talked about connecting with the grounded fear of the movie despite the fantastical monster, that it was at home instead of easily avoidable places like the ocean or space, and tied to the terror that he himself felt at the increase in stories of criminals who supposedly just craved violence as opposed to economic crime. This is a quote, I tried to say that what's under the city is what we're ultimately afraid of because there's no reasoning with it. That undeniable terror that the is what it makes michael myers so effective it's what makes chud so effective that there's not really anything
1: you can do about it well commerce is the culprit is that's not scary that's just sad (laughs) i mean (laughs) uh, and that's uh, maybe that's part of the the the, not the flaw the downfall of that movie I think that more so. One, I think it had some strong competition. I, I'm, it was what was eighty two. It came out eighty four. Eighty four. Yeah, I remember reading that it had had strong competition when it came out. Though I, I'm loath to remember what what the hell that was. So yeah, you yeah, have limited release already because the studios aren't particularly enamored of it, and they're uh, they're not gonna throw their backs into the the. They're, they're like, oh, we're not gonna this, we just put this out and put it put it back away. And right. then eventually, you know, it ended up having a second life because video started up, but right. or a different cult following, we'll say. But yeah, that you, you when you say commerce is the culprit, when you say that money is is the the evil, as you said, what or as you're quoting, what's underneath the city is is scary because you can't you can't reason with it. That's like a stressful existential kind of horror. And I right. think, <laughs> and I think that's important. I do think that that's important that that as a la- working as a layer. But there's also an expectation in the tradition of horror that there are going to be scares and there's going to be, and, and that means there has to be tension. And right. I do think that's one thing that Chud doesn't re- doesn't spend a lot of time on. There are a few scenes that work tension in, and they work pretty well. But overall. It feels like the wire. It doesn't feel like you're tensely, you know, you're. It's all about this moment. It's like no, there is no moment, sweetie. You, this is reality, and it's like no. oh, we, we didn't really want to buy into that. <laughs> and so, like the ending also feels kind of like it ends up being kind of messy. It, it also feels like they ran out of money with the the, <laughs> the, the the thing blowing up, and them just kind of like holding each well, other in the credits. That's roll. it, I guess. So they're like, yeah, wait. Right, Got to end it sometime, I guess. But it doesn't really wrap up neatly or or dovetail together like you just watch the end of a, a, a Seinfeld episode, right? Like, oh, those are the very same pants. That's what I like
0: about it, though. I I, I will talk about this when we get to the sort of conclusion of the movie. But I love that it's just like them staring at the flames, being like, okay, what the fuck now?
1: Right. <laughs> like, oh, it's just one more problem. It's just one more day for them. Right. Right. Because none of those problems are going to get solved. The biggest issue that got solved is one asshole got, right. got knocked off the board, but he'll be replaced by somebody even more brutal. Right. Who
0: knows the situation going in.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. He'll be able to play it exactly how he wants, and other people will give in. They'll be like – they even talk about it in the film. They're like, you really want to raise kids around here? Like, they're about to have a child, and you're like, yeah, that's that's a good question, you know? Yeah, They have definitely. a certain kind of lifestyle they don't want to lose, but they also it's – a, it's a common question in, in Philadelphia for people who have means, and they – are about to have kids, and they're like, well, we, we do have to talk about the school system or what the plan is for that, because the city's not going to be doing us any favors on that. For sure.
0: Bonamy tells this story about the inception of the movie, which I've slightly condensed in an effort at brevity. I've, I've definitely failed at making it brief, but I've <laughs> made an attempt. He said, there are two facts, and this story is three rungs up the ladder from them. The first is that there are huge colonies of people living under the city. Not subways, there is a labyrinth of tunnels far deeper, originally housing the city's steam tunnels. There are caves and arched ceilings. They look like medieval castle dungeons, and they all interlock under Central Park and the Bowery. And mostly during the winter months, there are people who live down there largely because it's warm. Yeah. The U.S. government was supposed to find a place for industry to dump its radioactive, toxic, and biological wastes because the restrictions have forced a rebound. Industry said, okay, you're not going to let us do X, Y, and Z with this stuff. You tell us what we can do with it. So fact number two is that the government has been toying with the idea of storing waste in some of these underground caverns. Now, I have no proof of this. The closest we've gotten to proof is that they have lobbied for and gotten approval for transportation of nuclear waste through New York City. They also got scared while asking the Nuclear Regulatory Commission what they wore on environmental checks, and the NRC ominously warned them that they'd need protective suits to shoot in their planned locations. So he concluded by saying that they took these and mixed them up, and came up with the idea that maybe people had been playing around with anything from recombinant DNA to radioactive waste, both incendiary topics at the time, and transformed into these chuds. And I think that this is sort of... What makes it have that feeling that we're talking about, right, is that it started from the governmental issue, that it started as a look at this overstep and and the sort of waylaying this burden on the people, and then it sort of let the monsters evolve out of that. As opposed to saying like, ah, crap, we got to have this monster jumping out of people. How can we make it mean something? And I think that that is a slight difference, but one that makes all the difference.
1: I think that that I, I love all of that, and and there's two big things I think about with that. With that, one is that it's a confluence of corruption, right? Because you have the corruption of the you know the me 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 '80s and the. Which were really just getting going at that time. I assume at the time of the writing of the script, it must have been at least a year or two before. Right. And the attitudes though, changing post Carter, getting into Reagan, the Reagan world, and people thinking that getting ahead at any cost is, is, is all. It's everything. That's, that's my new religion. Forget about God. It's about money. Mm-hmm. And they have Reagan who famously cut Funding and and put out all all these people. Dere- people became derelict after cutting funding for psychiatric help, and people had nowhere to go, and they really didn't give a shit what happened to them. And families don't have the means to to support them in most cases, or families aren't even included. The people just dumped in the street, right? Right. And and not to say that that's all people who are unhoused, but in many cases it is, and it will just say that's an example. And these unhoused people, they're not just going to die. They're going to go somewhere. And when they find out about, okay, well, these, as you said, the steam tunnels, I'm going to go down in the steam tunnels. I mean, I, I need shelter. Right. So they go down in the steam tunnels and they, they start to congregate there. And then there's word of mouth and the underground. People are like, okay, well, this is something I can live with. Right. But then the confluence happens when another person says, well, we'll just use the steam tunnels to, to push everything through. Uh, don't bother looking down there don't bother (laughs) checking what you're doing don't don't get off your ass just keep pushing pencils and and everything should be fine but there's the confluence is that when it when it happened they got stuck and they never would have got caught if the damage hadn't been done in the way that it did and that's sort of the brilliance of it is like turning it into a monster actually helps to you know put an icon on it
0: definitely So Andrew, eager to shift the story into something that had some class to it, was his quote, brings in Parnell Hall. This next bit is again a condensation, but only slightly. He says, "'People say horror movies are out. Sure, if you ask someone to write a script in 10 days and hand over 18 girls and a maniac, if you call that a horror movie, then I think it's true that horror movies are on their way out. But Chud has nothing to do with that. This is political.'" And that's exactly it. I think that that really sums up what makes this so special is that it has the monster. It has what you're looking for in an 80s monster movie in terms of there's goop. You got some great foam latex designs, but it really is political. And I, I think that that keeping their eye on that prize is what has helped this stand the test of time.
1: Uh, yeah, and I, I love all that. I, I also love about the the concept of the, the finding the derelict part of the city and even more derelict part because, you know, what was so beautiful about anything that was shot in the eighties is that, that Scorsese time, like the, the really mm-hmm. nice time of like the cars looked better and there <laughs> weren't as many of them. You have yeah. these neon signs popping up and the, the concrete and steel are just, is just starting to overtake the brick and the cobblestone is being replaced with the, uh, the asphalt in this transition. You start to see these buildings jutting up against each other, different eras of design b- bumping up against one another. And you get these really beautiful alleys where we still have them in Philadelphia and many places in Chinatown and Center City is one of my favorite things. You walk around, you just see these nasty alleys <laughs> and and they're they're lit like they're a dressed set many times because they don't want to put too many lights there, but they don't want to let it get so dark that it's dangerous. Right. Right. But you have these pockets of darkness. So you have this great contrast. So it feels both real and organized, you know, it feels intentional as well. And yeah. then you go into the, and then you go below that into the underground. And, you know, the psychology, I, I, I don't know, I could say what the psychology is behind, but you know, we all have this fear, this understanding of fear of. Derelict buildings, you know, ruins, old homes, you know, it's, it's haunted, right? Right. And maybe that has something to do with it survival, knowing like there are certain places that are corrupted and then maybe it's just they've got mold. Maybe they've just got, <laughs> uh, you know, they're unsafe to walk on or there's. Sure. That's some, enough. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and, and you, you need to explain it. And then through, through the tra- oral traditions, you start to. To concoct things like, don't go there, there's ghosts. I don't want to explain mold to you because you you're not going to understand <laughs> it. I don't really understand it, but I'm going to say, there's ghosts. You're afraid of ghosts? Then, no, there's ghosts. And
0: one day, this ghost will
1: be used in antibiotics. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we use ghost technology <laughs> to save <laughs> you. It's called <laughs> buisillin. Uh, this came up with that. Sulk, eat your damn heart yeah. out. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love that they were able to crash so much of that together. And I also love that they, they maintain the neighborhood feel where mm-hmm. different characters are bumping into one another, not necessarily connected by a scene, you know? Yeah. And they, there's
0: a part where I literally wrote the plots are converging and right. it just feels so natural. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the plots, they totally converge. Characters just start to meet each other or deal with each other. Right. And What I, another thing I love about what makes that so watchable for me is that it's got that Mike Lee kind of quality where you're like, I don't even really care about plot or where this is going. It's just a life. It's just Mm -hmm. people living their lives. And, but they're people I believe are real. John Hurd feels like he's a real guy. He's, he's both, you know, got a point and maybe just a bit of an asshole at the same time. Yeah, he doesn't feel like a polished movie character. No. At all. He's And his imperfections, all of their imperfections, are what helped to sell it. I will say that, and I don't think he's overall a bad actor, and I think he was one of the co-producers or co-writers as the lead who played Bosch. Oh, Chris Curry, yes. Chris Curry. Yeah, it,
0: well, it's funny because you mentioned that, and the funny part about all of Andrew's sort of shit-talking the original script is that in the commentary, which did feature basically the whole gang... Daniel Stern and Chris Curry were quite insistent that the script that they got was trash and they had to rewrite it again themselves, basically. (laughs) I I
1: believe that. Yeah. But I also think that Chris Curry's performance is terrible. (laughs) Yeah, he's wooden in this. He's very wooden. And it's not necessarily always the performer's fault. The conditions are going to be what they are. But it clashes a lot with when Daniel Stern's on screen with him and Daniel Stern is carrying them both Mm-hmm. And the scene on his back with his performance.
0: Well, him and Hurt are both very theatrical as right. well. They're v- both very big. And I feel like even in the moments where he's not, I, maybe Wooden was a little harsh, but where no. he's more reserved, I think it, it it does clash with that bombast that the other two are bringing.
1: Wooden is fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm, forget, I'm blanking on her name, who is the female lead who is also from Brazil. Kim Greest. Kim Greest. Yeah. Grist? However you say that. Oh, I remember her name. It's Kim Greist. Um, That's right. <laughs> some people say Grist. I, I, I love her. I've heard her. it both ways. And I love, I loved her. I always, I mean, I loved her. And Brazil was one of the, my favorite movies as a kid that I was a big Terry Gilliam fan as a kid. And that movie just sort of blew up my brain. <laughs> and, and I think that she's another great tone in the performance canvas. She's a lot more subtle, but she offsets john Hurds bombastic energy by just sort of it's really more like the characters are working as they should
0: right she feels like a calming presence She's trying
1: on to bring him down that feels like two people that live together it feels like two people are trying to make it work with one another one mm-hmm. one maybe doing a little more heavy lifting than the other <laughs> And I can really, I don't know about anybody else. I had to relate to that too, where it's sometimes I'm like, I was just yelling. Why was I yelling? I mean, I wasn't <laughs> yelling at anybody. I'm just mad about something. And, uh-huh. and my wife would be like, Yeah, no, you seem a little hungry or something. <laughs> <laughs> it makes those two characters feel more genuine when their performances complement each other in a believable way. Definitely. So
0: yes, as we say, Chris Curry playing Police Captain Bosch, We have Daniel Stern playing AJ, the Reverend Shepard. They are joined by John Hurd as George Cooper. Stern and Hurt are not really in any scenes together in Home Alone, so they probably didn't talk about Chud much on set, but I can see them like getting Vietnam-style flashbacks when they lock eyes at the premiere.
1: Chud. <laughs> like, Chud, the heat wave. I looked, the heat wave in New York. I looked in his eyes and he knew. Uh, I mean, it was Daniel Stern's wife was uh, in the opening scene as well, played Bosch's right. wife. Yeah, they, they may have never met on set. I may never have talked about it again. I mean, it's also one of maybe, uh, uh, you know, 30 movies that between the two of them that they had been in or, or uh, <laughs> projects that they had been in since that time between commercials and TV series. <laughs> I mean, how many episodes did uh, Daniel Stern do VO for... Wonder Years before even well, – that was that was before – was that before or was that after? Um, um, uh, I don't know. I'm so bad with years. It might have been late 80s and then it went into – Yeah, I don't know. I Look, don't man,
0: know. you don't star in Chud without it being on the forefront <coughs> of your mind at all times. That's right. That's right.
1: <laughs> Stardust Memories. There was Daniel Stern, John Hurd. <laughs> Did they ever talk in, in Home Alone 2, their characters? I don't think they did. I don't know. I, it's been a long time since I've seen Home Alone
0: 2. I watched Home Alone 1 la- like last Christmas, so I, I was fresh. I was like, they definitely don't interact in that movie. But yeah. maybe in 2. Hey, listeners out there, let us know. Do John Hurd
1: and Daniel Stern
0: interact in Home Alone 2, in New York? Use
1: the phone number on the screen. Yeah, 1-800-DO-CHUD-NOW. Right. We, wait, we <laughs> await your call. What the chud?
0: <laughs> perfect perfect yeah. we also have sam mcmurray as officer Crespy. this is a big time that guy character actor he's laughing it up <laughs> at everything every time someone's like i need help he's
1: like yeah right get bent <laughs> yeah he's <laughs> uh you're talking about the guy i i i don't remember you're talking about the guy from the tracy ullman show and yes from, yeah 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 um no oh, he's fantastic he played the uh, the dr kennedy in the sopranos always oh, a great character uh, freaks and geeks he played uh what's his name's dad he's cheating oh yeah he's yeah the, yeah. Oh, the dentist fuck.
0: yeah oh he's so funny he's
1: he's great. great i always like to so, pop up yeah incredible presence great face just always when you see me like and i like this he's like a clue yeah. he's like a, a younger clue gallagher type where you're like <laughs> i just know i'm gonna i'm gonna get something out of this scene
0: Especially like I think it's emblematic of the movie that he is in such a small role Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't feel like a small role because of who they filled it with.
1: Next to him was a guy, and I'm not going to know his, I know his name. I'm really great at faces and I'm terrible at names, which is really, <laughs> it's like a weird kind of Twilight Zone curse sometimes. <laughs> like, like people see the flash of recognition on my face and I'm like, I don't know what your name is. Just, <laughs> I still need you to say your name again. <laughs> I, just, I just need to carry a pad around and write people's names down. Like if I see it written down, I'll be like, that's mm. their name.
0: Just a, it just turns into a list of all names. Yeah, and I have no idea what they attach
1: to. It, and it really doesn't matter because it's just about that moment mm. seeing I I can see the word just like I can see their faces. So but that actor who's opposite him, the guy we're just talking about again, I just already forgot his name. Tracy Ullman guy. Sam McMurray. Sam McMurray. Uh let me write that down. Uh, no Sam, I'm do an <laughs> exciting podcast where I write people's names. Let me down. just draw <laughs> a
0: quick picture of Sam McMurray and just, draw and write his name next to it.
1: I'm gonna I'm going somewhere with this. You guys just wait. Um, no, the guy opposite him was also, I always remember him from X-Files. He was in one of the best episodes called Pusher, where he was something Grist. Not It wasn't Grist because we just talked about Grist. Kim. But it, Kim was, grist. it was Kim <laughs> Grist. But it was Frank. Mm, it was Frank something. And because I remember the guy saying, it was a great name. And then he goes on the, he's the guy he goes on the phone with and Pusher basically gives that guy a heart attack over the phone that's right
0: pusher that was that's one of the vince
1: gilligan ones i think
0: yeah it was it, i mean it's one of the best episodes yeah everyone who's in this movie in every role yeah is really making the most out of it i feel like there's no one who's just like yeah we just need filler we need someone in this role so just pull, pull someone out the street everyone feels intentional yeah
1: yeah tons of talent and experience in that movie and just like energy that's there i mean it's there and it's not there there's sometimes where you're like yeah, I don't recognize this person, and that's probably because they <laughs> didn't need to be in another movie. Yeah. Uh, and there's other times where you're like, that guy, yeah, that, that's just <laughs> that guy. Like, I know that guy. It's Sam McMurray. It's Sam, <laughs> I know that guy.
0: As I mentioned, this was filmed during a heat wave. It's exacerbated by the humid basements and sub-basements that they're shooting in. During an early scene in the commentary, uh, Cheek himself says, We finished filming, came up into 100 degree heat on the street, and it felt like spring. Mm. So, unpleasant shooting conditions. With that said, he loved the cast and vibe on set. He said that he felt like it was really going to have the art spirit of the Lower East Side and function as a time capsule of New York, which I think, mission accomplished.
1: That's a real thing. I mean, shooting conditions, when we were about to start shooting pop, I was hot off of finishing guard dog and doing all the merch and all the the running around with that. And then I was like, I want. I just want to keep the momentum up. I want to keep the energy up. Let's get pop. I had already written a draft of it and I had already shot a previs for it. And I found the house and my friend was like about to move in. I was like, let's take a look and we'll do a scout. I went with the DP and the producer. And the AD X Menzak, who I didn't mention, and, and the producer Charles Smith. And it was so hot. It was just so hot. It was disgusting. And and we kept having to walk outside because it's like, okay, there's not going to be any air conditioning running. We've got sound running. It's going to be a mess. There's going to be twenty-five people in here in, in a room at any given time. You've got some of these lights are going to be hot. People are going right. to be hot because they're they're working hard and can't have fans running your actors makeup's gonna get screwed up constantly and all this stuff it it slows people down it makes your grip slippery when you're trying to carry heavy equipment around a corner and not damage somebody's wall so we ended up pushing it and then it got pushed again and it got just to the really nice temperature so when we shot it everybody's just wearing (laughs) a long sleeve shirt and everything's fine wow and it's crazy how just like fortuitous that is and how brutal it would have been if we didn't do it that way. I, I've been mm-hmm. on shoes. I did a one of the grip jobs where I met Devin who shot this was for a movie in Philly called Concrete Cowboy. And I did one day as like a you know, genie and just got up at the crack of dawn, went out to the stalls where they shot the night before and it had rained and pulled, we pulled hundreds of feet of cable out of these stalls that were, you know, just rained on. So it's just mucked and dried. And then it's July and it just smelled terrible. Oh man. And it was burning hot by, by nine 30. And we were there till sundown. Um, it was to set up for all day, just to set up for a sunset and a night shoot. So we could set up this giant balloon 4k on a, on a lift. And then I remember I was getting pizza next to that kid who was in it. Who's the kid? Caleb McLaughlin, Caleb McLaughlin, who mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's a grown guy now and I don't want to be whatever, but like he was like the cutest kid I've ever seen in my life. Man. He, <laughs> he just bounced when he walked. What a sweet kid. And I got some pizza and then the the union guy was like, yeah, you don't let him see that you got pizza. I was like, man, I just worked for 12 hours straight. I don't have a calorie left in my body. I don't care what anybody says. Like people could be throwing wrenches at my head right now. I'd still eat this pizza and I get out of my face. Yeah.
0: That's so funny. They're very similar to this where they're talking about how like they're waiting to shoot and uh, they had to like move stuff around the corner. And so it's like they're like, all right, sit in the car for four hours while we reset the car that has to come around the corner. And he's like, I have to pee. And they're like, do not move. Yeah. (laughs) You have to be here. Yeah. That's, and then he, he wound up like having to run to the gas station because he was like, well, I'm going to piss in this car if yeah. I have to sit here. So that's a, <laughs> that's
1: a common problem as people yeah. that you as a producer must remember that people have bodies and they do yeah. all the things your body does. And you've got to, right. we had a thing with guard dog where it was, it was June when we were shooting and it was very hot. It was weird light because of the, the smoke, not the smoke, the weird kind of, the forest fire. Well, it was smoke. Yeah. From mm-hmm. the forest fires in Canada. Everybody's like, look at the sun. It's so strange. I had this plan in my head and I didn't have a producer and an AD for that, for that shoot. I had my, this plan in my head because the, the writer really wanted to have their dog be the dog in the movie guard dog and their dog, Artie. I love Artie, but Artie is the worst behaved dog on the planet. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so look, we're just going to rewrite this around Artie being really yippy and, bouncing off the walls and like he's a little dog kind of looks like a chihuahua is not a chihuahua and bounces off this glass. And that's a lot of the shots we're going to get, but his energy is only going to last so long. So we need to make sure that our crew doesn't keep coming in and out of this house before we get the shot. We're going to, we're going to set up on the side of the house. We're going to try to keep everybody as quiet as possible. And then we're going to set up the camera. And meanwhile, you've got already upstairs and you're keeping him nice and calm. And then he's going to come downstairs We're going to shoot these corners of him coming downstairs and then we're going to shoot him from outside. And then none of that happened. I mean, (laughs) none of that. That was my plan. And second, anybody showed up. First of all, people kept showing up in waves because it's like a lot of people are unpaid or they're paid lower than their normal rate. And they're doing favors. And the last thing you can say to somebody who's you're doing you a favor. It's like, no, you can't go to the bathroom until we're done setting up the camera. <laughs> and I'm sorry it took two hours, but that's how long it takes. Every single person who showed up on that set, uh, the second they landed, was like, I need to use your bathroom really bad. I was like, <laughs> I, you can't go on, Can you? Can we figure out a way? <sighs> I guess we can't just be really quiet. And then, and then before you know it, it's a party inside the house because the one right. is meeting the one and there's a line for the bat and They're like, yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah. Oh yeah. I was working <laughs> on that too. And, and then Matt would come down and was like, are we shooting? And he's got the dog in his arms. He's like, <laughs> it, It's all gone. All the magic of my plan. My brilliant <laughs> plan is out the window Wow, instantly. And I swear that dog had no energy. I was jumping. And, I'm Barking at it and screaming in front of the whole crew, like "Come on, let's go, jump up in the net." He's looking at me, like cock his head, like "What do you think yeah. I'm going to do?"
0: Everyone else is like, "I don't know what took you so long. This was <laughs> we could have been happening.
1: We spliced the shit out of that movie. It was a, <laughs> it was a, it was a rough one to shoot, and it needed a director and an ad. And they just happened to run over in the post production for this series we all were working on called Albies Elevator." which I was fortunate enough to do a little bit of EFX. And I did a ton of soundtrack work for I ended up doing like 70 musical pieces for that. And then we shot Guard Dog. What a a time. Sounds like it. And then as a freelancer, you you know, the next thing that happened, nothing for months. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: say, surely this will snowball into a ton. No,
1: no, (laughs) no. Barely a call. And then you're like, just okay, get that money to me, please. I want to make another <laughs> horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> so they
0: didn't film entirely on location, though. And the production designer William Billowit, also known for Creepshow, he worked on the uh, the one with Stephen King, where uh, the the moss takes over everything. I think a Green Problem, yeah. it's something it's called something like that. He talked in the special features about how he built a Y shaped tunnel. Because it enabled a variety of camera angles that could make it look much larger. So good tip for anyone looking to build a tunnel set. Yep. Make it in the shape of a Y.
1: Well, you can shoot it from several different angles and play it off of itself and light it in such a way that you can make it the tunnel look like it's connecting from one of the connectors and one. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's it becomes a whole series of tunnels, right. a system. He also said I remember being dirty a lot. That much comes across on screen, pal.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's filthy. That's great. It just adds to the grime. It with the, the heat too. You can see it. Like so many of those scenes where you're like, so John Hurt's just gonna like sweat through that shirt. Huh? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> that's oh, just yeah, what it's is. gonna be on screen. That's right. And he, that was probably the freshest shirt they had on set. <laughs>
0: The effects are also fun. You have John Caglione on Creatures and Ed French on the Victims slash Aftermath effects. Caglione is an icon. He did the makeup for Ledger's Joker, the Dick Tracy movie, Manhunter. Even his early stuff is like, did the Coneheads as he joined SNL for its second season. Makeup effects assistant for Friday the 13th Part 2. Special makeup effects for Basket Case. Like This dude has just been working on icons of horror from the word go.
1: Yeah, incredible effects. I'm terrible in that world. It's one of my weaknesses. And it works so much in digital effects. It's really weird because I constantly am just trying to talk people out of doing digital effects at all. Right. I'm just like, nah, just try to figure out how to cleverly shoot it or try to figure out how to do it practically as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Sells it way better than you'll ever sell it with digital it, it, in right. almost every case.
0: And Ed French is no slouch either, with work on The Stuff, Blood Rage, Vampire's Kiss, and Terminator 2 under his belt. So you do have some definitely powerful effects work happening. The Chuds themselves cost about one-tenth of their budget, but Caglioni talked about how much input Bonamy was giving. So no surprise that they had the money here. John was more into the mutated humans look, but Andrew kept pushing him more and more monstrous. And there was a funny quote where he said, "'You have to be a facilitator. I see myself as an artist, but you also gotta make them happy.'" You know, again, that freelance attitude—that like, you know—it is ultimately a job, but you want to try and express yourself
1: where you're able to. I think that the bigger thing, it, even when you're at the top, in the case of the shorts that I got to do, especially with Pop, I wrote it, I produced it, I directed it, and I did all of this stuff for the back you know, on the, on the back end with the posts, a lot of it, editing and VFX and and music. It's still a collaborative effort, no matter how much you want to have your specific vision pushed on somebody. When you go into that with the expectation, like, this is how it's going to look, and this is going to be, it's, uh, who's the guy that just passed, uh, the, the, the exorcist, the uh, New York Oh, Freakin? Director. Yeah, William Freakin. The Freak. The Freak. Billy the Freak. <laughs> he, he used to say, well, there's, it's, in my mind's eye, it's perfect, exactly how I want it to be. Right. And then when I get on set, it's, you know, we try to get as close. But it'll never be as good. It'll never be as good. Also, one of my favorite quotes was somebody asking him about, I'll just talk about him for a second. I, I loved when he talked about Cruisin'. Somebody in an interview brought up. What a movie. Who's the lead in that? Oh, my God. Pacino. Al Pacino. So somebody in the interview was talking asking William Friedkin, well, Al Pacino said that at the end of the movie, if and William Friedkin shut shut him down, said, "I I, I just want to say I don't give a flying fuck through a rolling donut what Al Pacino says about anything." <laughs> does that Does that answer your question? <laughs> I want to listen to this guy talk for
0: hours. Oh my god, Friedkin is amazing. His audio book, which he does narrate himself, really? is incredible. It's what, it is one of the best autobiographies that I have ever encountered. It's just phenomenal. Highly recommended. His chapters on cruising in particular are outrageous and insane and fucking incredible, but truly the whole thing is great. He's also just an amazing director. Bug, totally underrated. Yeah. What a fucking movie. It's crazy to me that like, I don't get me wrong. I love The Exorcist. In my opinion, that's like his third best movie.
1: Maybe what, like, what, what's it, what would you say, is asbestos? I love to live and die in L.A. That is definitely his yeah. number one, in my opinion. I think I'm 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 pretty basic with that. I think it, it it's for him. It's The Exorcist. The Exorcist just is something something magical happened with that many 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 times during mm. during shooting and during post. They put something together. That really had no business existing. Mm -hmm. It's already a impossible mission. No one asked for when you're like, okay, let's go after the Catholic Church. (laughs) Let's just (laughs) like, let's take a hard shot at them. But it's a horror movie, which is already kind of in the schlock zone. That's the expectation that some people are going to have. You're already coming from so deep in a hole of what people's expectations are going to be. And then for them to pull something out that was that evocative. And that, that makes you think and also scares the crap out of you. I mean, as a kid, growing up as a Catholic, even when I finally saw that as a teenager, I was not a Catholic anymore, I'll say. Right. <laughs> but there was a part of me that was close enough to having been a Catholic that still felt like, am I supposed to watch this? Is there, This feels forbidden, even yeah. now. And that was, uh, you know, 2000, late 90s, something like that. Not... 1970, where it's like like people (laughs) watching that, throwing up and crossing themselves. We had built the barrier a little more at that point. (laughs) Right. But that, I feel like those movies, movies like that and Alien Mm. paved the way for for movies like Chud to feel like they could exist in that same, in that genre. And that's another thing I love about horror is that it's not so compressed. It feels like people are really interested in forgiving the culture around horror it's so game for almost anything. Definitely. There's not a lot of judgments. There's not a lot of expectation or pretense that you've got to handle. There's not a lot of like, oh, does it do this? Does it do that? It can be the worst of the worst. And a lot of horror fans are like, I have, I'm going to watch that because it's horror. I don't care. I think that's absolutely true. I think there's
0: also a really interesting built-in suspension of disbelief where a lot yeah. of people come in saying, okay, I'm willing to accept whatever is about to happen it might be crazy. It might be unrealistic, but that's sort of the baseline that I'm setting for myself.
1: They cheer it on naturally. I mean, maybe this is an American thing. I don't know about a lot of other cultures, but I find that in in theater, you find when there's a great scare, you get a few chuckles after it happens where people are like, yeah, yeah, good. Good. They got me. They got me me again, baby. They got me. (laughs) And it's, it's not like a, oh, you know, when you sneak around a corner and you spook somebody and you're you're like, ah, gotcha. And, it's, it's like, I can't believe you did that to me. I can't <laughs> believe you would do that. You know I don't like that. But when you're in in, in that seat with that expectation, you're like, man, you got me. Yeah. You got to hand it Exactly. <laughs> I signed I up
0: to signed take up. the ride. Also, now that I had a little bit of time to think about it, I'm going to say top five. Number one, To Live and Die in LA. Number two, Sorcerer. Sorcerer, nice. Number three, The Exorcist. Number four- Cruising, number five, the French connection. French so that's my top five. <laughs> Cruise is pretty Cruise is pretty intense, man. That that movie's yeah. it's just got that vibe. Oh man. It really yeah. It's intense is I think the exact right word for it. <laughs> like it yeah. is fucking crazy. And I watched it after I had listened to the autobiography, so I'd sort of been primed to uh, have his his interpretation in mind of like the possibility that Pacino is the killer. Yeah. It was just really it was all working
1: for me. Really great movie. I went in, Anyway. <laughs> I, went in, I went in cold on cruising and and it did not disappoint.
0: The actors in the Chud costumes had to sit in these director chairs with an oxygen mask yeah. when they weren't on screen because they couldn't breathe, much less see in those masks. They had a reflective layer on the eyes. It took all day. And then you barely even see them, which is very funny. Yep. They said on the commentary, it makes you want to do theater. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it does. It's the right thing for the film to show them less because mm. you see too much of that and you've lost and that's the that's one of the major disciplines of any any horror that tries to have any scare factor at all. You know there's there's different kinds, you know, sometimes you're just going for camp and you just want it to be silly and you're going to see the the monster bouncing around the hills in broad daylight and it's like, right, "Okay, this is fun. I get to see that neat costume." And yeah. then there's other cases where you are genuinely trying to go for a scare and you're pitted against the fact that you're like, okay, well, I, I spent all this money on this thing. <laughs> I shot it with all this film and I've got it. I want to show it. And like, yeah, you can't, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to cut it. You've got to cut it as down to the bone, as little as people will tolerate, because that's just the right amount. But I'll also say we did guard dog and my best friend Kent, genius that he is, put the costume of the slime monster together by himself carved every droop on wow. it it was designed for somebody who's a little uh, my height six foot four so it's a giant thing with these tons like a, i don't know hundreds of dru- droops <laughs> oh big drips all over the place little drips and then it's, the, it's the slimy
0: as hell looking
1: it's slimy as hell and then we covered it in slime he put the the cup lights together there was a couple little things that i helped him with on on design ideas but he he manufactured it all by himself and then We wore it on the day. Had or we had the actor wear it on the day? It was a brilliant actor, Jim Jackson, who has also like studied theater in in Russia, and (laughs) he's like doing this non speaking role costume thing, (laughs) and he was great. And then I had to put it on for Blobfest in July because they were like, if you're going to come, you got to bring that thing, and then you're going to like take photos with people outside. So I marched out there with this thing, and it's a feeder like full of cat litter to give it the certain like look to it, and it's (laughs) it's just foam. With It's spandex with foam and glued to it, thick layers of foam glued to it, and then covered in flex seal and then covered in thick layers of pink latex paint. And it covers your whole head and there's a tiny little, there's a small mouth hole that you can just, you can't really see out of. The eyes are glow lights. So they're, they're, you can't see through them. And I had to stay, I stood in that thing for over an hour just talking to people and like taking pictures. People just kept coming up and hugging me. I couldn't see a thing. Oh my I'm God. saying random stuff. I ended up on the news. Somebody put the uh, microphone in my mouth and it was, I started just talking gibberish. And Matt the Matt Schmidt, who wrote the thing and started it, was like, talk about the movie. And I was like, <laughs> I was talking about slime people and their rights. <laughs> And like how they've be, been downtrodden for too long. And that's why I'm here. And it's like, talk about the movie. Sell the shirt. I'm like, I can't even remember my name. It's I think yeah. it's something about a dog. I don't know why there's a slime monster <laughs> or something. I'm melting in here. Oh, I was dying in that thing. I was loopy by the end. Sure, sure. But it's a great feeling to get out of those costumes. Boy, that's, that's, that's a special <laughs> feeling.
0: Cheek also said about the slimy look of the movie. Between us and Ghostbusters, we sold out all the KY jelly in New York City. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I guess that was the tough, the tough, uh, thing that it opened against is Ghostbusters coming out. Oh,
1: yeah. That's a huge, that's, I mean, that's, that would eat its lunch. Yeah. I had the foresight to have our set deck guy on the day of shooting guard dog be slime wrangler as well. So he just mixed different levels of viscosity of buckets of the slime. Tons of Elmer's glue and borax and uh, this conditioner stuff, cellulose and stuff, and mixed with pink, uh, well, red and red and white dye, and just pouring it all over <laughs> poor Jim, who's already like covered <laughs> it, though, just covering him in slime. We you Need your touch up, Jim. <laughs> ruining Kent's costume, which Kent also. I gave it back to him, and he just something about that guy. He's also an animator, brilliant animator, and he just loves tedium. I can't stand it, and so we work well together in that regard. <laughs> he he, just, he got all of that hardened slime goop off of the – because he can't leave it on because it molds. Sure. And he got it all off. Wow. That's remarkable. I don't know how. I mean, I guess I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you also have Martin Cooper doing the score, which I really like. It's this kind of strange score, but it really fits the tone of the movie, I feel like. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah. I love that style of music. The 80s – Coming out of the 70s, independent composers who have to figure out how to make something feel theatrical, but they have the budget for one keyboard. Right. And the tape machine in their bedroom, it's somewhere between Giallo and Carpenter for that soundtrack. It just, it gets epic. It also has that, the you know, rock and drum machine every once in a while and the bells, the synth bells and stuff, all iconic stuff. Definitely.
0: The movie took 1.3 million to make, 2 million technically with their deferred payment that they never actually got. John Hurd got 110k, Stern and Curry got 8,000, which was scale, Cheek and Abbott got nothing at all. The movie made a little under $5 million, though, but really, as we sort of alluded to earlier, it was a cult hit on the home video market, baby, and has become one of horror's most iconic names. It was in Tony Hawk Underground. Big featured moment in us. The Criterion Channel did an April Fool's joke with
1: it. Yeah. It's, it's just a classic, folks. Yeah. Criterion. Get real. Just put it out. Um it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's got enough going for it, it really deserves it. I hope that... I mean, you're talking about the commentary and stuff. And, and a lot of those people, even, you know, smaller roles like John Goodman, he's getting on in years and he was like a baby in that. Mm-hmm. It would be great for anybody who's still around to make an appearance at the Mahoning. You know, we have the Mahoning drive in, in, in Pennsylvania. Right. It's one of my, it's, it's, that's my church now. I love that place so much. And they oh, did, yeah. they did this incredible chud night where they had two guys dressed up as chuds. And a whole sewer, you know, street scene set um, with gas coming out of the sewer and stuff. That rocks. My wife, Sarah, and I took photos. I love that place. And they do such a great job. And it's a place that honors a a movie like Chud. Hell yeah. And it takes (laughs) – the fact that they can sell out a Chud night. I mean, that's incredible. Love it. Big shout out to Mahoning. Saw a really awesome
0: David Lynch festival there. Yeah. That was really, really sick. Yeah. So let's get into the actual plot of the movie It's this quiet New York street that's instantly transportive, feels like after hours or eyes wide shut. It's this sort of surreal calm before the storm. But I also really appreciate that they don't waste any time in shattering it. Because she pauses by that steaming sewer grate, suddenly gets just yanked in along with her dog by this freaking nasty arm. All that's left is her shoe and the title card, Chud.
1: What a fucking incredible opening. It is, except that title card is terrible. (laughs) <laughs> I mean that, the graphic itself is great But the uh, the way that it's animated in Is just so uh, <laughs> is just Some sloppy work man even back then I know exactly what they did And they're just like that was an afternoon That some guy was like smoking too much Weed was like got paid two days To work did it in like About three hours
0: <laughs> He said oh I was supposed to be doing this for two days Yeah uh,
1: I, I work with guys like that sometimes I know exactly <laughs> what that looks like A street sweeper coming by
0: the next morning sucks the shoe under just another piece of trash now, which I feel like is very thematically relevant in terms of really sort of establishing the perspective of your Joe on the street from the bureaucracy's perspective, right? That we are just something to be swept up and get caught up in this machine.
1: Yeah, I love it.
0: We also see some transient folks looking weary as hell. Uh, The man settling in behind the fire hydrant is, in fact, director Doug Cheek. And someone is watching them through a camera, and George Cooper being called by Derek, who warns them that they have a deadline of Friday for a huge follow-up article that they're working on regarding some of the community of unhoused people who've gone underground. And this is done through a cutesy repartee that they have with the answering machine intermediary, but ultimately Derek can't write the story until he has the pictures. This is a fun opening for John Hurd's character, George. I think that it is kind of interesting, especially in the dynamic it sets up, that... Yes, he is funny, and yes, he is charming here. And then it's balanced with, as his girlfriend Lauren comes in, we do see this sort of defensively brusque cynic that he is as well, right? It honestly seems like he might be the kind of guy who's exhausting to be around <laughs> if, he, if he were real. But it manifests in sort of solipsistically leaving all of his girlfriend's stuff in the basement during their recent unpacking. Someone who has put up so many barriers because they're afraid of the world and, and how bitter it's made them that, that it sort of has put blinders on them as well.
1: Yeah, I, I love all of that. And I love that the repartee, even in that goofy repartee, it's great writing. You have a way to compellingly establish both character and do a little bit of exposition also give a little bit of flavor of the area and what's going on in this world. You know, not everybody lives in New York. Not everybody knows what goes on with deadlines with copywriters or with journalists and and photojournalists. And it also is just going back to that wire thing. It's just people who do the research and they know or they just happen to write characters that they know. Right. And they're like, this is a conversation that we would have. And here it is presented in a very efficient way. And it, it's great absolutely so lauren has to go get her jewelry down there and she meets her neighbor
0: on the way down there's some strange noises coming from a sewer grate uh, she kind of just leaves without another thought though when she finds her case she says well, i'm not dealing with whatever that is <laughs> the neighbor though has left the building and she's terrified to find a bloody hole in the ground after a bunch of boxes seemingly explode this was a real hole in the street that they found and they just put some boxes over it and had billow it stand behind them and toss them That's what we call making the most of your budget, folks. What do you need a fancy box exploding mechanism for? I got two of them right here at the end of my dang arms. (laughs) Uh, Ed Jones, delightful character actor, is playing the police chief here. Less delightful and to Lieutenant Bosch's frustration is the fact that he's suppressing news of a rash of disappearances. These police are up to no good.
1: (laughs) And, you know, Bosch pays for it. It's also like, again, it shows that the same thing that The Wire does, where it's like, we want to look at cops as this unified front, that they're all the same, that they all think the same, and they walk in lockstep. But in this case, it's like one person's attitude is damaging another person's life and and within their own unit. Definitely. Local.
0: I also love, you know, as I'll sort of talk about, there is some sort of gesture towards giving him something for participating in the cover-up in that he gets a promotion but yeah. when when it does hit close to home and they basically just go like uh sorry charlie yeah. <laughs> <Like> that's <laughs> them's the fucking breaks it really i think makes it clear to him where he actually stands in relation to the big wigs versus how quickly one might become chud status
1: yeah you buy into the system and you sell yourself little by little and you know what your reasons are for when you're doing it. You make your excuses for why it's okay for you to do it. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, when the short end of the stick finally comes up for you, when your turn finally comes, that karma kicks you in the ass and you're like, that's the thing it changes you, your radicalizing yeah. moment. And that's when he starts down his, his journey. Right. Right. George, meanwhile, is at a photo shoot with
0: Lauren and blows up in frustration, feeling like he's trapped by this bullshit. He says, I'm upset because these people are using your body and draping it with the carcass of some helpless little field mouse to sell some
1: worthless perfume
0: that probably smells like sheep piss. What are you shushing me for? They know it. They made it. They can smell and they know what's in it and they know what it takes to sell it.
1: Yeah. Great rant. Great delivery. You delivered it just as well as he did. Oh, thank you. Yes, um, I'm a, I've always said I'm a real John Herd type. <laughs> I've heard that around town. He's the the John Hurd of
0: his day. Right. Just the acting part, though, not the notoriously short-tempered
1: part. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He is a brilliant actor. Absolutely.
0: Funny enough, the ad people in the background wound up getting married after meeting here. It's Patricia Richardson and Ray Baker. Aww. Lauren calms him down, though, and he goes to check the messages while she gets her makeup touched up. The first message is that Derek said fuck it and wrote the copy without George. They'll fudge it after the photos. The second is a doctor's office following up with Lauren. But the final one is Mrs. Monroe, the quote-unquote bag lady we saw, who was picked up by cops after she tried to steal a gun, and now she's looking for help. And she was one of George's photo subjects that they've been looking for,
1: so he sprints out. I love that, I mean, we, we glazed over a little bit before the photo shoot, where she's getting ready, and she's putting makeup on her ass, and he's like, what are you doing he's like i've got a pimple it's like you put a makeup on your ass it's like that's where the pimple is and they have this great married couple repartee of "Well, what are you going to be wearing in this and she's like perfume (laughs) and that's it you know this whole a way to make characters compelling and a way to make characters feel vibrant and and alive while you're still just just talking right absolutely
0: Down in a soup kitchen that they actually built into a half-collapsed church in New Jersey, Daniel Stern's Reverend A.J. Shepard butts heads with Harry Bosch. Clearly not the first time, but also, and this isn't something that clicked for me at first, when he calls him Lieutenant, Bosch is like, it's Captain Bosch. This is his promotion that he got, to keep quiet about the cover-up. But it's not sitting right with him, and Bosch is here to check in about Shepard's report that many of his, quote, family, his regulars, are going missing. The underground dwellers, about 12 of them across two weeks. Only Val over there is left. And this fucking guy, thousand yard stare, troubled to say the least.
1: Yeah. Val is, he's another character actor, but he has that moment. Gog and Magog. They will shut the sky.
0: Yeah, not really any information. He kind of just riffs off the book of Revelations. Yeah. But we see that the undergrounders are all looking for weapons as he slams down a damn knife that vibrates tensely in the
1: table. It is something to behold. Everybody in this movie is like an advertisement for acting classes back in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> They're all making their acting coaches and teachers proud, instructors. That's right. A cop tails George
0: and Mrs. Monroe into the subway tunnels, though he refuses to enter the actual underground at the smell. Forget it, Bosh, I lost them. Very funny moment. Just a good, yeah, good delivery. It's all working. John Heard joked in the commentary, from this point on, nobody is acting. Oh, yeah. They they did all say it was miserable. They were covered in black soot at the end of the day. Uh, It was all in their sinuses and lungs, hot as Hades down there. Just a bad time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there was a Philadelphia-based actor who ended up down there. The guy who is also a jur- is a journalist, a freelance journalist. He's haunting. I know he's from Philadelphia, though. I actually remember looking it up the first time I saw it because I'm like, that guy sounds like he's from Philadelphia. <laughs> I'm like, it was. Accent hasn't changed that much. That's right. And he actually did a movie that was way worse than that. The Abyss. He was a part of that crew. Oh, wow. He got damned by that, oh, man. that, that <laughs> next movie. I think he was one of the people that actually was like, I'm not doing half of what this guy says because i'm just not because oh, he's deranged I, yeah this is stupid <laughs> and nothing's worth it and nobody talks about being in that movie <laughs> that's, uh, you probably look back at being in those sewers as a beautiful dream that's right
0: it is quite the trek underground i do like this set location they point out the stalactites that are real under the brooklyn bridge on the manhattan side from generations of like road salt and that sort of thing
1: and those are them yeah wow I didn't know that. Yeah, it's cool.
0: There, Victor, Hugo, and Mrs. M live insulated against the world. I wasn't sure if they were making a Victor Hugo reference there. These are Les Miserables, perhaps?
1: I didn't think of that either. Uh, Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, they're their own Les Mis under the the streets. Yeah. Yeah. But
0: Victor has been looking for a gun to shoot the, quote, ugly fuckers who might come around. He's sick, explains Mrs. M. Just look at this giant ass leg wound. And G- George takes a look, and it is indeed a giant-ass leg wound.
1: <laughs> yeah, the guy who played Victor was the Greek in uh, The Wire.
0: Good effect. It looks fucking gross. It, like, goes down to the bone, it seems like. Really nasty stuff.
1: Weird performance there, too, when they reveal it, and it's supposed to be really shocking. And then they hang on his face for way too long mm. and in the cut. And he's just sort of gnashing his mouth silently <laughs> and you know that means turning into a chud man <laughs> that's presumably what a person would do if that happened however yeah they should have cut earlier it just looked weird <laughs> it just get, it gets sort of like that awkward kind of like silent moment where it's, mm-hmm. the, the moment is passed and they haven't cut yet <laughs> um yeah they said, we need to be exactly this length.
0: We cannot trim any more seconds. Oh, yes.
1: No, no. I got that sense. I You know, <laughs> I'd also like to say that, that you think that there's an infinite amount of time to edit anything, but it, there's anything but with anything you work on, no matter what the project, the budget, everything gets shifted at 4.30 on a Friday. It gets handed to somebody who needed it two weeks ago. To have it ready by Saturday morning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Bosch returns to the soup kitchen to ask about the subjects of George's photos, and Shepard is nervous. There's something more going on, he suspects correctly, and that is among the growing list of missing persons, and in fact, the woman that opened the movie is Bosch's wife, played by Daniel Stern's wife. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So Shepard takes a look, he identifies Mrs. Monroe, and he asks for some info in return. The quote-unquote routine EPA probe of the tunnels, which normally takes a week, is going on four, and it's making his customers jumpy. He also found some radiation-detecting equipment, but calling multiple agencies and speaking to a handful of people led nowhere, so he takes Bosch down directly, and they find a Geiger counter, which goes wild when they turn it on, right before we hear a roar.
1: What a great
0: tease of the monster. Like, to have this be pure sound design is
1: so awesome. I love that. It's a great move when you can pull it off. I love it. Yeah.
0: George finally returns home. He's covered in grime from his journey. And the doctor's call was saying that Lauren is pregnant. They decide together that they're excited about it.
1: I think this is a really cute scene. Yeah, it is. It's it's, it's very sweet. And, you know, the same with that pimple scene. It's right. those little moments. You, you get to see them have a spat, but you get also get to see how they deal with the spat.
0: But a little girl is in a phone booth with her granddad. She spots the chud emerging, but too late. And the granddad is quickly taken. They were already lost and now she's alone in New York. It's like a really grim scene to follow up that last one.
1: Oh, yeah. And the weird like hanging on the girl just that, again, it goes back to this like there's moments that are scary. And then there's moments that are just sad because because they're developing these characters. It's really important to develop characters. It's the, the Stephen King trick where you've got to make the characters likable and then you've got to kill them. But in the case <laughs> where like and it is kind of a Stephen King moment to have it like you could see that written in one of his books where it's just the grandfather was there one second and now she's alone and you've, right. you get a little bit of time to just look at her and imagine like what she's going through the trauma and and the fear and the confusion and the shock, right? She's right. just sitting there in shock. Which is really like one of the only things you can get a child actor to do right is <laughs> sit quietly <laughs> and look un- unhappy.
0: Especially compounded by the way, you know, she makes her way to the police and Bosch is perturbed and he is our sort of our stand in. We are similarly perturbed because we know that it's true that she saw this monster. Officer Crespi is laughing it up. He thinks it's <laughs> hilarious yeah. that this little girl claims she saw a monster that took her grandfather. The fact that she made it to a police station yeah. communicated what happened. And this guy is like, oh, that's fucking cute, kid. Yeah. It's just so frustrating, tragic, indicative of yeah. the, the truth.
1: <laughs> it, it It's a different context for a, like an old trodden trope of, you know, monsters. I don't believe in monsters. but it's, And it's right. like, and you're showing, okay, it is just a kid. But, but you've also now you've got this whole angle of you saw it. You saw what she went through, and now you're like, oh, man, this is just a horrible situation. Yeah. <laughs> this is just – and again, they're, they're- I like it, but I also see where it turns from just being a horror film into mm. being like, this is a depressing drama. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bosch
0: has had enough. He calls the chief and he says, hey, tell the commissioner I'm on my way to accuse him of an NRC cover-up. I thought it was very polite of him to give them this warning. (laughs) He says, j'accuse!
1: Prepare to be accused, sir. Yeah. They also break
0: into Cooper's place for evidence, finding the photos of Victor's nasty-ass leg, and they use this as the coup de grace in their meeting, shutting up the glib NRC rep Wilson and the police commissioner. So Wilson reveals that they've stashed a large amount of nuclear waste because the court order preventing them from moving it through Manhattan was a lose-lose. It's already here, and now they can't move it out, he says. But what about the damn monster? You saw it. I'm not prepared to concede the existence of a monster. Is a very (laughs) funny line from Wilson, in my opinion.
1: Is that what you're going to tell people? That you believe in monsters? That you're (laughs) afraid of monsters? It's like trying to shame him into like shutting up. That's right. And I love that character, his angle, and the thought process and the voicing behind that character is so well-written because it's like, you don't find out till later really what his leverage is, and it's nothing. And it's really, there's like, Oh, we didn't need to go through this except because of you. It's just a you <laughs> problem. It's really not. Yeah. Again, it brings it to that wire thing where it's like it's not the government. It's specific people making decisions because they're put in positions of responsibility and they do the right thing or they don't do the right thing to varying degrees. You know, sometimes you you help people out and you don't steal funds. And other times you create <laughs> chuds. That's right. It happens. Yeah. It happens to the
0: best of us who hasn't been there (laughs) george martin as wilson i think is really fantastic he Mm. is a great smarmy bureaucrat does a great job with it
1: yeah it's great that there's at least three guys in the room that that aren't are sort of bumbling and they don't really know what the other one wants or what the other one thinks or what their angle should be they're all sort of like we we don't need to meet with you and then it's like i guess you don't want my photos it's like Well, uh, uh, maybe I'll just destroy them right now. It's like I have cop; they're copies. (laughs) Well, we'll we'll destroy them. Uh, The the bungling, also the the ineptness. It's just Mm -hmm. it rings so true. And Shepard freaks out, and he says,
0: "See on the front page." He threatens them as he storms out. Yeah,
1: you're a liar, buddy. Yeah, (laughs) you. At least you kept your mouth shut. And he's just throwing stuff at each other. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, he tosses the the briefcase.
0: That's it was right. funny in in the commentary. Daniel Stern was like, "Everyone, shut up! This is my moment." <laughs> he like made them all actually watch it. Very funny.
1: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that even today he's like, even for Chud, he's like, "Everyone, come on! This is I I, <laughs> I did something here," <laughs> and he really did. I mean, that yeah. I, I'll say more than anything in that movie, that was the moment that truly won me over for Chud was that scene. The fact that they included that scene that really didn't, it it had no business being in a movie at that time and that world, it just is like being in a a monster horror movie with the billing of like, schlocky monsters coming in slime, coming from the sewers, they're going to get you. (laughs) And it's like a realistic interaction of a soup kitchen worker fighting against the bureaucracy of these. Three different department heads. What? It's like, why? <laughs> no one asked for this. And it's so brilliant. And it's just so emotional. You're just like, yeah, fuck these guys. These guys are terrible. Yeah. You tell them, Dan.
0: You signed up for Sewer Monsters. You get Dan Stern channeling Michael Moriarty. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and we're better for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. My. And, and th- you know, we haven't talked a lot about that. You briefly talked about Q. But it, it does have a, a Larry Cohen kind of feel to it. It's, oh, it's kind of surprising that he wasn't involved in any way
0: yeah it feels of his ilk right it's it's sort of right he is your favorite filmmaker's favorite filmmaker kind of thing
1: yeah what is bone why does it start like this <laughs> <laughs> I mean this is a brilliant short about you know what used car salesmen do to people but mm-hmm. uh why is it here now <laughs> yeah. you, just, you just gotta
0: let let King Larry go off man absolutely you just let him go off
1: absolutely. We're all the better for it.
0: Yep. So in the park now, Lauren is trying to convince George to move out to the suburbs, where he is approached by Murphy, a freelance journalist who's been popping up a lot around the police station. And he warns George that he's being tailed by the police and wants a story. But George and Lauren quickly depart in a cab. The veil is lifted now, though. This is the key thing. is not that he approaches them, but now they see the tail and they see the cover-up in action. Yeah. In the aftermath of Shepard's Rage, Bosch finds a file with the name Chud on it and demands to know what the heck that is. And they say, Two gas company guys just found it. A cannibalistic humanoid underground dweller. A Chud, all right?
1: Yeah, what do you think? This is a locker room? That's top secret.
0: <laughs> and Wilson also claims it's dead and that the problem is solved. Yeah. And they, they go to view the corpse, and it says, there's every indication this was once human. It's wearing the rags of a Bowery bum. A Bowery <laughs> bum. Cleaps the man leading them through as they're all bundled in radiation suits. But it was death by asphyxiation, gas leak, and they consider it job done, a freak accident. It couldn't happen again, Wilson assures Bosch. But when Bosch says he's going to double check with flamethrowers, Wilson says, hey, bitch, no, you will not.
1: There must have been just a month where they're writing this and they just think they're just so pleased with themselves and they got got alliterations everywhere and they got this great cast of characters that are all interwoven into this city story that's bigger than the characters it's it's about the cities it's about politics it's about who we are in our culture at this time and it also it's going to have a monster in it so that means i'm going to make a ton of money so in their minds they must have just the writers must have just been like i'm this is it for me. I mean, my life is going to change. It did
0: not. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was. They saw it. They visualized right. it. Right. And, and couldn't manifest it, unfortunately. Yeah,
1: take that, Jim Carrey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bosch was one step ahead of Wilson, though, and his force is already down there with the flamethrowers. Mm. They watch with the NRC crew's cameras as they inspect the sewers and get freaking devoured by a chud, despite the flames. Wilson obstinately refuses to warn people. Meanwhile, George arrives home and realizes his photos are gone, and he contacts Murphy, who warns him again of this cover-up, and that we gotta go down there now, he says. Bosch warns Shepard of the creature as well, plus the plans, he yeah, had to flood the sewers with gas, he, he tells him about. This isn't the safest place to be, but Shepard has to cook dinner, responsible to the end, his brother's keeper watching over the flock, all of the baggage that is carried in his name, <laughs> Reverend Shepard, yeah. is, is, is manifesting here. I do love this cut over to Wilson, who's convincing the others of his plan to yeah. blow up or to like flood it with with gas. They say, "You're gonna blow up the whole city," and he goes, "No, no, no, just a section of Soho." It's like, "Oh, <laughs> sorry, Soho." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that that attitude of it's so laissez faire, it's so just casually like. The nuclear arms race attitude of like it's happening somewhere else. Like I could cause as much devastation as I want, as long as it's somewhere I don't live. It doesn't matter to right. me. Definitely.
0: It honestly does this is a much more grim story than than anything Chud could could hope for, but the move bombing here in Philadelphia yeah. Like, it does sort of feel a little akin to that in terms of the sort of well, who cares about the people around them yeah. and, and what it's going to do to the neighborhood, not only in the immediacy, but in, in the aftermath as well. Who gives a shit? <laughs> like, that was basically the attitude.
1: Yeah. So it was 79 was the original move altercation. 85 was the bombing. Right. Um, when they moved over to Osage. But before they were in Pouton. And that was when they attacked the compound, killed one of their own cops. They ordered the house because it was a crime scene for which, what was it, eight guys? But they, for one bullet to the back of one guy's head, and they had no guns, no firing pins in their guns. They were all sent to prison. They were all sentenced for murder. And, I mean, none of them could have shot the guy. None of them did shoot the guy. Also, if anybody in their group did shoot the guy, it could only be one person. I don't know how big the trigger loop was on those guns back then. (laughs) Nine guys could pull the trigger at the exact same time, somehow getting behind the 12 combined rugby teams that were the small army of Rizzo's little army there. Right. And then they the judge ordered the house demolished that night instead of Mm -hmm. checking for evidence of any kind. And then they went in and famously beat all the people who lived in the area to strike fear in their hearts and went into their homes in the neighborhood, all for real estate. Yeah. So right. I would say those stories for sure are very reminiscent of a story like Chud. Yeah. Although Chud does focus a lot more on what feels a lot more like white actors living out there, not really squalid lives. Mm-hmm,
0: definitely. Shepard does warn Val on his way out. Val is extremely on edge. He is uh, pretty creepy here. And they say in the commentary, Shep Abbott, he, he says this is much more what Chud was sort of intended to be in his mind when he wrote the initial story treatment it was like the idea of just Val being very sick and on edge and, and a human cannibal, basically, as opposed to a freak.
1: Yeah, that doesn't work nearly as well. The, seeing the neck at the end, you know, sort of stretch out. I mean, you can't, that's not going to work. If you've got just a normal human head, it's, it's so much easier to accomplish that when you've already left reality. The guy tailing Shepard from the NRC pushes Val
0: off the ladder from his hiding spot, killing him, and then locking the Rev down there. This guy is something else. I forgot to mention earlier that when Shepard tries to make a phone call after leave after storming out of the conference, and he eats the dime. Yeah, what is the most badass thing I've ever seen <laughs> in my fucking life?
1: Just and, and and Daniel Stern's reaction is just like nothing. He's like he's like fuck get, you. You did it. You beat me. He, yeah, can't say anything. Doesn't just walks away like. <laughs> it like, completely defeated. Yeah. No response at all, really. What can you say? Just, it's over. Yeah. I, going back to what he said about, I didn't want these big monsters to be. It's like, what movie did you, What, are you, what who is this movie for? <laughs> who knows, man. I've who definitely knows? been that guy where I've, like, pitched ideas to people and been like, this is going to be so cool. And they're like, this is for no one. This is mm. for you by yourself. <laughs> and that's what I love about Chud. It's for me. <laughs> there
0: you go. Hey, sometimes it works. Yeah. Murphy is dragged away by the chud, and George loses his shit, both me and the character, because it's a super fun flash of the monster. He gets sucked into this damn tunnel like a friggin' spaghetti. (laughs) (laughs) Shepard's crawling through the tunnels. He's looking for an exit. He finds a whole damn group of chuds, four of them crawling around this goopy nest. It's great stuff. The Geiger counter portends they're chasing him in a really fun way. Just a cool scene. Yeah. Back at home, Lauren checks out that basement entrance and finds not a chud as we expect, but the dog from the beginning hanging from its leash, which is nasty. Yeah, very,
1: very gross. Geiger counter is great. You've got that preemptive tension. It's something here, and it's it's clicking. It's like the uh, in Aliens when they've got the they're closing in us. Detector, They're in the yeah. room. i'm I'm reading it right man like you've got (laughs) the feeling of like it's it's there like the instrument is telling us but they can't see it yet. what is happening definitely brilliant and
0: it's it's interesting that you mentioned that comparison specifically because in that fangoria interview that i was reading the producer andrew was talking about how you know those those facts that i mentioned earlier are sort of the superstructure of the movie and then from that point He was like, okay, now our goal is to make the scariest movie possible utilizing this. And so he was like, we watched Alien and a lot of Hitchcock movies and Jaws. And we're just like, what is working about these that we can use in our movie as well to make it scary and then take it one step further was his goal. And I think that that is visible in these moments of things like using the Geiger counter to have those that that tension rise with just using the sound design. It is really effective work.
1: I want to say, too, it's a common misconception, I think, that we all start with as artists is that there is originality, that we need to some somehow achieve this originality. It's got to be different, but it's also got to be something people want to see. And how do we do that? And that's what a great filmmaker does. And really, what great filmmakers that you love do is they watch movies they like, and they're like that part that goes in my movie with my yeah, characters. I love that, and <laughs> it's really just that. That's it. Talking about aliens, there's a, I just saw somebody make this comparison. I forget which the movie, the ant movie was that Phase Phase Four. Phase Four. There are a ton of shots that are just pulled straight from Phase Four. You know, the same with Star Wars. You see like the comparisons to the old footage the flight footage the 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 dog fight scenes even the the look of the pov shots looking out from the cockpits there you're like oh, the design is from this too <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's funny yeah that's the thing though right is you see what works you say how can i execute this slightly differently so that it works in my movie as well with the thematics and everything and and yeah that's how you make a good movie baby
1: I think that it's important to, you know, get your head on right too. And, And it's really tough to do because most of art education is garbage. It's really bad. It teaches you the wrong thing for the wrong reason to talk about like commerce being the problem is they prolong things that have no substance without focusing on things that are substantive. And they sort of get you in a cult like manner to focus on things that are unattainable like art. And in some ways... I think that that's important because it's important for people to push themselves and to drive out, to be individuals as artists. However, instead of looking at it like I need to be original, it's more like the way I typically look at it. It's almost like imagine you live in a smaller village in a simpler time. And every year there is a traditional festival. And in this festival, everybody participates in their small way. People bring sculptures and people bring food and people dance and, and it's all of this that comes together, right? Every year it happens and every year there's a unique new generation and they all want to put their small spin on it and they do, but there's certain things that have to happen. There's certain things that they have to go through to understand how to do honor to the tradition. And I think that's, that's a better way to look at it. It's how I typically look at it as I think about it mm-hmm. like that. Instead of trying to be original, I just try to do what other people are doing and then I end up being close – being a little bit more unique than I expected to be because ultimately I, there, I have ideas I want to shove in there too.
0: Right. It's it's going to filter through you in some way because it's coming from Because it's you. You are unique. Interesting. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. This is at the same time that Bosch is being led to the site of a body washing ashore. And it is his wife. Everyone's getting surprised all over town. Yeah. It's his wife. It was kind of weird since she is actually Daniel Stern's wife. So he was quite (laughs) shocked in the commentary to see this intense decapitated head prop that looked quite good, but wasn't in the released cut. Mm. So that was put back in. He hadn't seen this prop that was made of his poor dead wife. Yeah. And they're in the commentary. He goes, oh my God.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Talk about an audience of one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I don't like that at all. Right. He also does confirm that it was her walking the dog back in the beginning, a habit she picked up, staying all night studying now that she was
1: back in college. College kills, folks. That's right. Don't go to school. <laughs> what do we just say? They teach yeah. you crap there. <laughs> you got to be street smart. That's right. You got, you got all these habits
0: that get you killed by Chud.
1: Yeah. You think you got a 150-pound Chud coming at you, barreling <laughs> down an old sewer? He's going to stop the... Listen, I don't know what I'm talking about. He's going to say, oh, a degree in yeah. film from from Barnard University. Yeah. I won't hang your dog. You've got a Bachelor of
0: Arts. Boy, I think it's Barnard College. I <laughs> fucked up the one name that I chose. <laughs> I could have picked literally a million universities that I actually know the name of. Yeah,
1: we're both getting tired. <laughs>
0: yeah, all right.
1: <laughs> Let's keep it moving. Yeah, yeah.
0: The problem is, in her shock, Lauren didn't relock the basement. So the chud is emerging while she's in the shower. This scene is psycho as hell. It was confirmed in the commentary, but I was definitely picking that up ahead of time. But it also subverts that, because in the drain, so famously effective in Psycho, backs up and shoots blood at her when she tries to
1: snake it. Yeah. It's a really fun reversal. Awesome. So it doesn't make quote-unquote sense. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Oh, did it not make sense for some reason? I don't think it matters. <laughs> yeah. That is one of those failings I have where I'm like, yeah, that's that just is cool. It never yeah. occurred to me until you just said it. That it doesn't make sense. Now that I think about it. <laughs> no, that that doesn't make a lick of sense. But I mean, <laughs> look at a guy like uh, Christopher Nolan. Has he ever directed a scene that made a lick of sense? Have you actually thought about it for for a minute?
0: Just like here, it doesn't matter.
1: That's right. <laughs> a lot of times with film and, and and art in general, it's more about how you feel. That's right.
0: John Goodman shows up as a cop in a greasy spoon diner He's supposed to be watching the streets But he's distracted by the waitress's legs And he misses the approaching horde of chuds They break in and attack As a man on the street panics and runs Climbing right over our intrepid director This was actually the final scene originally Which is wild What? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. How? <laughs> the chuds just attack Yeah, They lose That is bananas I mean, where it is makes sense It works not that this movie has a real ending, but like that is not anything. That is like a projector turn off or something like that. <laughs> if you cut after that, that'd be really confusing.
0: They were like, yeah, that's why you don't see any of the actual fight or anything. Right. It's, it was just they break the glass and everyone screams and then that's it. But
1: I guess I can kind of see it. I, I guess I can kind of see the thinking, at least in the script phase where, you know, but yeah, man, you got to pre, it's thank god for pre-visualization you know you can <laughs> shoot all this stuff on your phone before you have to deal with it in reality <laughs> now it's not fair to talk shit about people back mm. then they're <laughs> living they're
0: living on a on a hope and a dream back then oh my god <laughs> god i hope the dailies come out
1: yeah well, yeah exactly that yeah <laughs> checking, checking the gate and the, the dailies and you know not and all linear editing and yeah that's crazy
0: The boy from downstairs is just about to open a banging door when he's called away for dinner. But this motherfucker doesn't need someone to open the door because it's a goddamn Chud. Chud. He he smashes right through. Everyone talked about how annoying and demanding this kid was and that they were like, we wish we got it torn up on screen. Well, that's (laughs) actually
1: what Chud stands for is child having unfortunate dinner.
0: What the heck? (laughs) (laughs) It's all becoming quite clear. (laughs) The attack has given Wilson the only go-ahead he needs to move ahead with his gas plan, just as George stumbles across the munched-on body of Hugo and Victor, curled up in the corner. When he approaches, though, Victor wheels and attacks, because he's mid-transformation into a chud! (laughs) I love this reading. George shoots him in self-defense, but it's not until the double tap that he's dead. And then this scene kind of gets funny for me, where it's like a Matryoshka doll of people jumping out at him. First Victor, and then Mrs. M attacks him, yeah. and she's like, how dare you kill my brother? Yeah. And then Shepard jumps out and attacks her. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's a mess. It, but it also feels like, okay, yeah, that, that's what would happen. Okay, yeah, that makes sure. sense. But it does smack of somebody who has not made a bunch of films, doesn't have a lot of experience, is not taking advice from seasoned veterans who are like, you know, that's not how you want to make that scene. They're like, this is how it happened, man. You can't tell me how to make my movie, Dad. I'm going to be rich and I'm going to be cool. That's right.
0: Just wait until the bell jar hits. People will rediscover it. (laughs) It also does facilitate the line, thank God your soup kitchen delivers. Yeah. Which is very, very funny. Jesus
1: Christ. I forgot about that line.
0: (laughs) Wilson seals the manhole covers that lead out of the area, but the chuds are already on the loose, and in fact, one is attacking Lauren. So, shutting the barn door after the horse has already escaped, they're already on the streets of New York. Doesn't matter if you shut down the fucking sewer grates.
1: That's right. It's too late. Cat's out of the bag. Chud's out of the sewer. That's
0: right. We gotta get that saying to catch on. I don't know Mm -hmm. what we're doing here. While trying to find a way out, George and Shepard stumble across a pile of radioactive waste. It says, Contamination Hazard Urban Disposal. Chud for short, and the true meaning of the cover-up's acronym, years worth that Wilson must have been dumping here for years, they say. Acronym.
1: That was the word we were looking for. Acronym. (laughs) Not a mandala.
0: (laughs) They also find the feeding den full of body parts. It's pretty nasty, and these are from the last batch of guys we saw, so they also stumble across the camera, unfortunately damaged. Curse you, Chuds! They pull a headset off a decapitated head, they do manage to get some audio, and the sleepy tech on the other side is shocked. Who are you, he asks. Very funny delivery from this tech. Yeah. He does get in touch with Bosch, though, and Bosch dashes off, directing them to an exit manhole, but not before Shepard warns Bosch about Wilson's true nature. Laura's screams are being ignored by the neighborhood and the chud gets in. So she cuts the power, lures it into the dark room where she blinds it with chemicals, grabs a decorative sword off the wall, chops its goddamn
1: head off. Yeah, she's got a Ripley moment right there. And she's such a great actress to pull something like that off because she she so fluidly can sell being vulnerable and being strong. Yeah,
0: yeah. This thing is also becomes like 40% neck, so it really opens itself up to neck chopping, to be honest. Yes. Also, green, goopy blood, they were talking about how they just used a shitload of the um, glow stick fluid, you know? Tail as old as time. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. Who knows what was in it back then? Yeah.
0: <laughs> the gas is getting to Shepard as the two of them run for the manhole, and Bosch is intercepted by Wilson, who goes with him. Step over here into the shadows, says the spider to the fly. <laughs> Bosch reveals everything he knows. You're not from the NRC at all. You're the government garbage man. Yeah, that's right. Wilson pulls a gun on him. He says, I can't let you do this. And Bosch knocks his damn block off with a punch and gets the keys that he's like dangling. (laughs) He's
1: like, you mean these keys that you need?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The men are at the manhole, but it's it's still blocked. And they were going to have Reverend's eyes glow here to indicate he'd been shutted while down there. Yeah. But they talked about there being some kind of scandal about them finding human DNA in the sewers that had producers kind of hemming and hawing about releasing it at at all. They wound up cutting some of this movie instead of just including that thread. I looked, I couldn't really find anything specific about that. It might have just been the general recombinant DNA buzz. If people out there know what he's referring to in New York City around 1983, truly please comment on the thread for this episode on Instagram or Reddit. Oh, or yeah. just email the mailbag, mailbag at gmail.com, because I'm really curious. I could not find what controversy they were talking about or alluding to on, on the commentary. Oh, so.
1: that's fascinating. What What could that be? I mean, I wasn't reading newspapers back then. I think I was one year old. Mm.
0: (laughs) And it's honestly fucked up that you weren't reading newspapers because you should be informed.
1: I'll tell you what's really fucked up is I'm not reading newspapers now. I have never (laughs) read newspapers. I have a hard time reading newspapers. Wow.
0: There could be recombinant DNA in the sewers right this very moment and you wouldn't even know.
1: Look, in case you haven't noticed, I get my news from The Wire. Wow.
0: (laughs) And from Chud. (laughs) Bosch is hustling over. Lauren is arriving to try and get Wilson to shut off the gas. The plots are converging. Wilson recovers. He hustled over too, and he shoots Bosch in the back. And then he goes to drive the truck over there. Yeah,
1: the truck over the the manhole. Yeah. But Shepard
0: grabs Bosch's gun. And he shoots Wilson, and the truck fucking explodes. Crazy effect. As is always the case, it was much bigger than they expected. The thing you fly, you see, fly off. It almost nailed the actress. Stunt coordinator had to shove her aside in order to save her fucking life as this goddamn truck exploded. Oh Jesus! Wild, wild stuff. And as we sort of talked about at the beginning, when we were talking, we mentioned the ending. They sort of just grapple with what happened in the glow of the flames as we crane out. It's really fucking
1: awesome. And you know that shit was on fire, and there was a lot of just. The director screaming, reset, move here, <laughs> crane up, look it like this, hurry, just keep going, just keep going. They would have been doing that for as long as they possibly could not to lose the consistency of that fire.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Well, it works, baby. Does but, it? You don't think it works? I think it works. The ending? I think it works. Is that an I ending? I mean, it is. it yeah. ends there.
0: I think it is an ending in the same way that, it, I think it's going for the same thing that the original ending was going for. In that it is, like, sort of executing this suddenness of the ending and saying, like, okay, you stopped this one thing. Now what? Like, the chuds are out. This didn't actually accomplish anything. And because it ends that quickly, that's your last emotion, right? That's the thing that you sit with is, like, okay, what next? I think that it it leaves you with the mystery in a good way.
1: The original ending is so funny- to think about what that would look like. I mean it'd be easy to just place that together and take a look at what that looked like. Instead of just ending on the crane up and the (laughs) you have this like this chaos going on, right? And then it just smash cuts to Caps getting a cup of coffee and taking out the wagers' legs. Nothing going on here and then just like the smashing glass and the (gasps) and turning around and it's like judge. That was Chud. You watched Chud. That's right. You just watched Chud. Bro. <laughs> you just got Chud in. <laughs> Chud stands for you just watched Chud. <laughs> That's right. It's a, a clear acronym. <laughs> right. It is an acronym. I think it, it makes a lot more sense now that they had a different plan. I don't think the original plan would have been better. It is what they really needed to do. You know, you know what's a great example of what they – It didn't come out till a couple of years later. And maybe this was part of the inspiration of like how to end a story better was Return of the Living Dead Mm -hmm. has that great energy of it cutting away and showing the, okay, okay. And how long ago was that? And how many did you see? Okay, okay, okay. And he's turning the keys and then they blow up the city. And then they're like, (laughs) It's so, all right, there's a couple of fires, but the rain should put that out. And then the music comes up. Right. And it it implies that it's gotten out of control, which I think is what the intention sounds like it was for Chud. And they're probably just right. thinking of how can we shoot this and make it look like it's getting out of control. And then they, like we we're talking about earlier, retrofitting, scaling things back, they probably started to eat a little too too deep into there and and then it didn't make sense anymore and they're like well that's what we can shoot so that's what we're gonna shoot and that's how it's gonna work so
0: i mean it makes sense to me and now josh we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie but is in fact the best horror movie ever made and i'm gonna let you start
1: i mean i feel like i interrupted you so many times telling what the story is (laughs) and, and for this very purpose and why it's so great i will sum it up though and here I now go summing up in a quick fashion Why Chud is Great <laughs> by Josh Jones. In conclusion... <laughs> Five-paragraph essay, here we go. <laughs> um, yeah, I, Chud is great because it's it's got great writing that is not necessarily great screenwriting. It's not necessarily all put together, but it's like half of what you need to make an incredible timeless film and that's so much more. Having what you need to make an incredible timeless film is so much more than I think anybody would expect out of a production that's that scale with that group of people that a lot of them elevated that movie in a way that you wouldn't expect out of movies of its peers at the time, necessarily. And it's strange that it came out at the same time as uh, ghostbusters which you know notoriously had the zaniest and most unbelievable ridiculous script ever the original script by Dan Aykroyd, which makes no sense um mm. there's parallel dimensions and nonsense it's just all of that none of the groundedness the ghost fully fucks him yeah. instead of it
0: just sucking his yeah, it's, dick
1: it's a whole it's <laughs> a with the original script <laughs> if you don't know about it is it's a thing and um mm-hmm it makes nothing but trouble look very very <laughs> tame and simple
0: yeah that's right i remember vankman had the the dick nose still yeah,
1: down <laughs> to earth you know and chud i i can't help but think about it when we're talking about it about its production and people's intentions with it and what they hope for it which is every movie mm. and that excitement registers on the screen you you do end up with some serious problems. Uh, we talked about some of the performances being incredible and we talked about some of the performances not being any good. And that honestly, to me, just adds to the charm of a film. It's just one more of those films that like through sheer will was brought into this world. Right. And unfortunately they had to go through that pain of it people being like well that bomb didn't make money your, your score is low and so you're a bad person you should feel bad. <laughs> and I'm sure they probably did feel like shit especially because they probably thought they were going to be both rich and cool <laughs> after subverting horror and making people are going to see this. And it's all these things I've been thinking about for so long in my mind I know it's a, it's perfect and in my mind I know it's great and then it comes out and people are like what the what do you know i don't <laughs> like you get away from me <laughs> mm-hmm. and then l- years later people have babies and the babies have babies and before you know it there are legions of people who are compatible with chud that's right and they love chud love chud they love, chud. They, they <laughs> love it and it's also something to say about filmmaking in general and, and making anything that's art it's not about the audience necessarily i think it's really important to think about the audience and to think about how they're going to understand what you're doing and what your intentions are to the degree that that's appropriate. But also, the score means nothing. The awards mean nothing. Chud will never make as much money as Madame Webb made, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And that is, I just saw that last night with a couple friends of mine, and that's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. And hilariously, really fun, dumb piece of garbage, insanity. Just just pure, unbridled (laughs) who. would ever think this was fine and nobody seemed (laughs) to care about it no one was really like at the wheel they're just sort of like yeah this is our job we're doing it (laughs) and and that's not chud chud is like those movies brain damage and and basket case and frankenhooker oh yeah hen water exactly who you watch those movies and you're like this guy just made movies for himself he just knew what he wanted to do yeah and he was Obsessed enough and driven enough and just happened to be in a place where he could do it. And he did it. And now we've got it. And that's, that's incredible. That means so much more than whether or not it had great box office. You know, it affected people. Yeah. Definitely. It's like the Van Gogh of <laughs> early 80s horror movies. So true.
0: Everybody's saying it, folks. <laughs> it's the Van Gogh of early 80s cinema. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made, because one thing that production designer William Billowit said is that because these movies were so independently made, they could go in imaginative and even aberrative directions, but that would let them leave a deep impression. And this has it in spades. You know, it's not an easy shoot. It's a heat wave. It's dirty. They're low budget. But as Caglioni said, pain is temporary. Film is forever. And I think that that ethos is all over this movie. It's held together with duct tape. But they put the work in, they stretched their dollar, and god damn it, they made Chud. They made it fucking work. And at the end, they put out something that does look fucking good. Yeah. But what makes it such effective horror? Beyond just fun monster, you know, there's good effects and stuff. Sure. That's all, that's all nice. But it's really about subverting that social dynamic. And I find it to be really, really effective. The upper crust and their cronies don't care about these people. So they dump a bunch of toxic waste in their home, but that resulting change leapfrogs them in the pecking order. So now they're strong predators picking us off in the night, which we find out these upper crust cronies are fine with. And you realize you're a lot closer to being a chud than you are to being one of these guys at the top. You know, George the Sensitive Artist feels it and is embittered by it clarified through his disconnection from high fashion. Bosch, as we said, realizes it after doing their dirty work and still getting no preferential treatment when the tragedy strikes close to home. The terror of being the underclass won't stay buried when the underclass continues to grow. Over the past 50 years, household incomes have grown three times faster for the top 20% than the middle 20%. That wealth and power is accumulating at the top and they'll trap you in the sewers with the monsters and the gas in order to retain it. They will happily make you a chud and happily blow up Soho in order to make sure that you stay in this section and not in their section. And I think that there is such a a bite to this movie that does get kind of overlooked a lot of the time. I think that people do just look at it as kind of a silly monster movie. And that political edge that it has is a lot less recognized than it might be in something like *Cue the Winged Serpent. And I think that they are sort of uh, a great double feature, if you want that sort of thing. They're they're peas in a pod. They're talking about very similar things, and I think that they both do it very effectively. And that's what makes this the best horror movie ever made. You're here, Josh. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was super super fun. Please tell the folks where they can follow along with the with your work, where they can check you out online, all that stuff.
1: Anything that says no master lives is us. We're kind of a mess with that, but we've got an Instagram. You can follow us at No Master Lives. You know, we've got a band camp coming out soon that's already, that's No Master Lives. There's nothing up on it. We have tons of stuff that just has to finish getting mastered and some cassettes that have to be made. But for right now, we're pretty underground. Um None of our shorts are available online unless you own a t-shirt that has a code on it. that <laughs> lets you watch it by design. More stuff will be coming out, but you know. If you want to see stuff, uh, look out for us. We'll be around. There you go. Get in on the ground floor, folks. That's right. Get involved. I highly
0: encourage you all to do that, because everything that I have seen from Josh and co has been just delightful. So yeah, definitely follow along with no master. As far as my plugs, uh, I uh, am basically no longer promoting the Patreon, because as people may or may not have seen on social media, the show is in its... Uh, uh, outro. We are concluding the show on the fifth anniversary. It will be 200 movies covered October 7th, 2024. Happens to line up perfectly. I said, this is a great, great springboard out of here. So, you know, uh, I'll be talking about this more. As, as we get closer, but just so people know, we're sort of wrapping things up. So uh, instead of guiding people towards the Patreon, I will say, hey, check out the back catalog, because I have put a shitload of work into this podcast uh, over the years. And there are a lot of movies that, much like Chud, I don't think necessarily got their due. Maybe it's just because it's movies that people haven't seen. So I encourage people not only to listen to the back catalog, but to use it as A movie list. Go watch a movie that's on the list that you haven't seen yet. Maybe it's Chud, and maybe you haven't even seen it yet, and you're listening to this episode about Chud and saying, Maybe I should go watch Chud. That's the one. Go do that. Go watch Hour of the Wolf, our last episode. Ingmar Bergman, incredible, incredible film uh, that is so uh, heartbreakingly (laughs) self-defensive. but But it's really, really great stuff and some really freaky, fucked-up imagery in there. So much great stuff. So yeah, go check out a movie that you haven't seen. That's on the list. That's your homework
1: out there, everybody. And George, I just want to say this is a fantastic podcast. You've done, you have done a ton of work. You put a lot of research just into, I mean, us just talking today. I'm like, I've I've looked into Chud before and a little bit of prep work before I got into this and rewatched it. And you came prepared with a lot of stuff and a lot of insight that isn't available everywhere. And I really love this podcast. I really love everything that you've done. And no matter what happens, you know, it's an incredible body of work and it's an achievement. Well, I definitely appreciate that. And yeah, hey, go check out that achievement out there, folks.
0: (laughs) Go, Go listen to one. All right, that's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye.